everyone, and welcome to Between the Sheets, episode number 355. I'm your host, Chris Zona, joined as always by my co-host, David Bixen Span. And Bix, it's just me and you this week for a very interesting show. Yes, indeed. As we go back to 1995, I guess Emma will be here in spirit, at least. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the guest that we was trying to get on couldn't do it for various reasons, and we needed to record Patreon this week, so we decided just to... They do it with just us, so we have time to devote to the, doing the Patreon show. At least try to get as much of that done as possible. And um, you know, it's not it's not, uh, not a real big, big, big show. There's some, a lot of fun stuff to talk about, but yeah. So it's just going to be us, and it's not even a full week. It's only a five day week, as the way the time uh, matched up with trying to uh, fill the gaps in. That's what I try to do lately, and and figuring out which shows to do. And uh, this will fit right in, as we're only going to do uh, five days, May 19th through the 23rd, 1995. But luckily, during our week, we have a pay-per-view. Yeah. And let's go Let's go to World Championship Wrestling. The Slamboree on May 21st in the Bayfront Center in St. Petersburg, Florida, was to be judged as anything but a bad show. It had to be for reasons having nothing to do with the matches themselves. WCW continued its string, which now dates back to October, of presenting pay-per-views without any top-quality matches. But Slambury did have a few strong points, some of which were surprises. One, the Hall of Fame segment. Even after a night of bad matches, Dave almost wanted to give the show a thumbs-up just because of how classily they handled this. Granted, the whole idea of a Pro Wrestling Hall of Fame has its inherent problems and turns into honoring loyal office employees or family members, and those who are deserving as performers often are ignored due to political reasons. But this is the best part of the show, partially because you were taken away from the fact that the show was so bad. The only negative was Angelo Poffo's speech, saying he wished the Monster Maniacs the best. It was like a sudden jolt back into the reality that the product was so bad. The segment where it appeared that Gordon Sully didn't know he was being inducted was not as spontaneous as it appeared as everyone knew beforehand. Well, more on that in a minute. Two, the announcing of Eric Bischoff. If there was a pleasant shock in this show, it was that Bischoff did a good job. When the word was out that Tony Schiavone was going to miss the show due to undergoing neck surgery, where it is he'll be out approximately four weeks, but usually guys come back faster than the preliminary word. This surgery has been scheduled for some time, but Schiavone continued to postpone it, partially due to Gene Oakland's health problems, and the company not wanting to be minus two lead announcers at the same time. Seeing that this was a Bischoff taking his place and giving Bischoff's previous performances on the gun, it like a disaster. Bischoff made some dull matches almost watchable but trying to get over strategy while the matches were in slow spots. And in matches where kicks were used, his understanding because of his martial arts background was superior to any other announcer in this country. He didn't know the holes in a lot of places, but Dave shudders to think of how bad this show would have been with Shivani based on his recent work. He was especially strong on how he sold the angle at the end with Rick Flair put the figure for an Angela Poffo. Meanwhile, Bobby Heenan offered no help, almost no help again. And number three, the idea of running an angle on television at the last minute and offering a surprise match, particularly involving a disappeared name wrestler like Road Warrior Hawk, was really good. Good as an idea. Unfortunately, the match that transpired wasn't good, and for the company, the end result made no sense. The untouchable Ming had a blemish put on him before a showdown would sting. Thus, whatever aura they were able to give to the guy was partially diffused before his matches he was supposed to start drawing money in. All it served to do was make Brian Pillman look even more like a worthless prelim wrestler when he not only lost, but all of his offense was made to look ineffective. We'll talk about all this stuff as we go along, but we're going to talk about Bischoff now because it really ain't going to come up you know, any more in the show. Um, 
Eric Bischoff at, at, before Nitra was a serviceable announcer, I thought. Nitro, when he starts doing that Nitro, it's all about him doing his thing, you know, where he's getting his shots in on Vince and WWF and, you know, just being <clears throat> being a guy who's, who's really trying to put over the show and everything involved there. But in this era, I mean, if he's announcing, I thought he I thought he was a very serviceable announcer. He's less fake than he used to come off at this point. Oh, Nitro, yeah. Exactly. I mean, even he, even here, he comes off less fake than he had previously. Yeah. But th- I mean, this is, it's not perfect, but it's easily the best call of his career up to this point. And, if, and another thing, too, about Bischoff on Nitro is Eric Bischoff is clearly being Vince on Nitro as he's the guy that you know is in charge as the play-by-play announcer. Like Vince was the guy you knew that was on charge as the play-by-play guy on Raw. We're here. Kind he's just. An, yeah. uh, uh, we're here. We're here. He's just announcer Eric Bischoff. Yes. On Nitro, he's the voice of the company. Yes. On, at this point, he's just an announcer. Yes. Well, and he acts like the boss too. You know, when something happens, you know, he gets kind of, you know, upset. You know, or yes. all right now, you know, stuff like that. He's he he show he gives that whole vibe of like, okay, I'm the boss. You know, we're here. He's just an announcer. Well, and we're also less than a year removed from them acknowledging during an angle that he was an executive. Yes. The Hogan knee injury thing. Yes. And, yeah, Heenan, I mean, as much as everybody talks about Heenan in the latter years of the NWO era, checking out, uh, he ain't too checked in in this era either. He's only been there for a little over a year. Yeah. (laughs) So, well before NWO. All right, the show drew about 7,000 fans live, which was full for all practical purposes, with about 4,700 paid and a $94,000 house. Very preliminary estimates as a, as a buy rate between 0. .60 and 0. .77, which would be a possible star K with Hogan and the Butcher Drew, or perhaps slightly lower. Com- company pay revenue range from 1.5 to 1.9 million. And then there were the matches. The show is booked a lot stronger, as in more angles and better finishes than the recent debacles. But the entire show contained only two top-shelf workers. Great Muda, who almost did who did almost nothing, and Vader, who was handicapped by having to take it easy on the stars. Ric Flair is just sad to watch in his present condition and position. It'd be the greatest thing for Flair to appear once a year in a Legends match at Slamboree for the next five or ten years with a Murdoch or Funk, anyone but a Wahoo, and be given 15 minutes, and in that contest, could probably challenge for the best match on the card. And everyone would be thrilled to see him and have him deliver a classy interview. But he can't be a main eventer today, even though he's still a better worker than most in the company. Every time he tries to be now, it only makes it that much worse. Funny reading this in this week that we're in in 2022. Uh, as it turned out, the only wrestler on the show who even came off looking like a good worker was Arn Anderson, who was almost perfect in his role of carrying Alice Wright to his best TV match to date and beating him convincingly in a way that Wright came out looking fine. It didn't go unnoticed that the biggest surprise pop of the show was when the ref counted three after Orange DDT. Okay. Um, we'll get into this more as we go match by match, but um, I, I think Dave's definitely underrating uh, Sting and Bubba's performances on the show. Well, you got to remember what time period you're in, too, and who, who you're talking about, so. 
Yeah, although as I'm scrolling, I see he gives it a solid rating, not particularly good, but that's to me that match was always pretty much the highlight of the show. So, all right, well, um, this show was the final appearance for ring announcer Gary Michael Capata, who had everything but the main event. <clears throat> His contract expired a few weeks back and wasn't renewed in a cost-cutting measure. And then, uh, according to him, his book, I think it was later in 95, not that much later, they wanted to bring him back, I forget if it was to do the whole show or to just do a main event when they couldn't get Buffer. It was one or the other. It may have just been the main event, because I think he said something about not wanting to screw with Penzer. And he was like, okay, then pay me what you pay Michael Buffer. You're you're clear. Okay, so yes, it must have been for just the main event. So he was like, you're bringing me in as a Michael Buffer analog since you can't get him on this evening, so you should pay me similar. And you can guess what happened. <clears throat> I understand where he's coming from. Yes. But he, ain't Michael, but he wasn't Michael Buffer. Yes. Although in 1995, and- Michael Buffer isn't entirely Michael Buffer yet either. Well, I mean, he's not what he would become. And he's not at that time, but still 95, he's still charging him big money for that, for that yes, spot. Yes. Big money. But this is pre ready to rumble empire empire. Yes. But he, I mean, the ready to rumble thing was huge. And yes. at th- that point in time, yes. so it's still big. It's still a big fucking deal. Yes. <clears throat> All right. Uh, in the first match on a live main event show, the Blue Bloods, Lord Stephen Regal and Earl Robert Eaton, defeated Los Especialistas. Ricky Santana and Fidel Sierra, billed as being from Mexico City in 82 seconds. Originally, this match was to be against the Stars and Stripes, but uh, Marcus Bagwell and the Patriot, but the Patriot was in Japan, and nobody in the company realized it. WCW, everybody. Dave said... They should. They really need to read the reservers, particularly the sections covering companies that actually make a profit. A lot closer because it was well known weeks ago. Woof. Bagwell was there, and nobody could find the Patriot. <laughs> uh, How does this happen? Well, they did. They're not the ones who booked him because it's all Japan, right? Yes. Still, he obviously would have asked for the time. Uh, I don't I don't understand this. Um, so wait, is this the match? Because I feel like there was only one or two Los Especialistas appearances. Is this the one where they get unmasked? And it, oh, no. No, it, no, actually, I think it is because it's Bischoff on commentary. I don't think so. Did did Bischoff do any of the other live main events when he wasn't doing the yes. pay-per-view? Yes, Bischoff did main event all time. Okay, so let me see, because it's not on. Anytime main event was not Tate, he's a, he's an announcer. It's not much. on either Bash pay per view, so I'm pretty sure this is it. Well, it wasn't. I guess it wasn't important enough for Dave to mention it because he mentions mm. nothing about it. Yeah, I would check. I think it's in the torch if it's there. But um, so the the deal is the well, actually no, I feel like there were wrestling baby faces like the Nasty Boys. But anyway, <clears> the, the the thing they end up doing, they only do one or two matches, is that they are actually and. The Barrio Brothers, mm-hmm. who are infamous, who Bischoff recognized on sight. <clears throat> yeah. Very, very weird angle to, to <laughs> have a prelim tag team that people already kind of knew who they were anyway. Yeah. It, definitely a weird angle. Um, 
Although they were a good, they were a good addition to the roster at this time. They they lined so, the TV a little bit. Had good yeah, Wade, for stars Wade, and Wade does Wade does not mention unmasking. All he mentions is that uh, the highlight of the match was Dusty attempting to pronounce the Lucha Libre tag team name. Yeah, Dusty saying those especialistas, I'm sure, was a a yes. treat. Yes. All right, so that's not the, so they weren't unmasked here. All right, uh, next we get stunning Steve Austin with Colonel Parker and Ming in his corner beating Eddie Jackie with a gore buster in 60 seconds. No sign or hint of him reforming his tag team with Brian Pillman. We'll have more on that as we go along, but yeah, not a good look for Austin's um, standing in the company at this point in time. Eddie Jackie in a main event match that goes 60 seconds. Mm. So, like I said, we'll have more on that as we go along. After this match, during interview seven, the Nasty Boys were jumped by the Blue Blood, setting the stage for a later storyline and upcoming match on the June 18 pay per view. Regal gave Knobs a good chair shot to the bat, while Eaton gave Sags a devastating chair shot to the head. Knobs was was the one supposed to be hurt, so the segment ended with Sags hovering over Knobs, saying he's out. <laughs> this is why we need uh, agents slash producers, I guess. Mm-hmm. Craig Pitbull Pittman made Mark Starr submit to the armbreaker in two minutes, two seconds. Mark, uh, former UWFI wrestler Mark Ashford Smith. Yeah, well, uh, was okay. it UWFI or PWFG? PWFG, that's right. And Craig Pittman, so. Yeah, so he's, he, he should have he known how to defend the uh, Huji Katami. Yes. And then Ming defeated no, Brian you Pillman. something. Uh, no, it didn't. Oh, no. Gene Oakland called the 36-year-old Pittman one of the top young men in the sport. I mean, well, sure. he wasn't portrayed. But the thing is that Pittman wasn't portrayed as somebody in their late 30s. So he yeah. was portrayed as a rookie. Yeah, which he so, was. And he's younger than Gene, so. Uh, uh, mean, mean pin Brian Pillman in the United States title tournament match at 440. Mean did so much. Pillman hit him with the plancha towards the end, but Mean reversed the whip into the guardrail. Mean hit a thrust kick off the apron, and Pillman took that great bump off the apron, catching his throat in the guardrail. Parker threw him in, but and Mean used a Billy Robinson bat breaker for the pin. Mean continued to work on Pillman after the match until Hawk did a run in and hit Parker with a shoulder block. Star and a half. As the show went off the air, Hulk and Parker issue challenges, and Nick Botwinkle announced a Hulk versus Ming match will be added to the pay-per-view. Yeah, Brian Pillman's made like a total jobber here, but the, and, and the thing is, is that, again, who's the booker here? Newly minted book. It, well, wait, is it Sullivan yet, or is it still Flair? It's still Flair. At this, I think at this point in time, I think it is still Flair. Uh, I could... Let's see... I think Sullivan's about to be. So I'm, we're, we're maybe in the transition period. But yeah, still. I'm checking. I'm going to check the Torchback issue listing because I know it was the cover story for the week it happened. So that should. But Flair, Flair did no favors for Pillman anyway. So that's the thing. I mean, this is Flair's guy, one of his guys, and he never booked him to the potentially should have been. No. Okay, it's not till but July. Okay, it's later than I thought. Dusty, yeah, Dusty gets all the shit, you know, for how he booked Pillman when he comes back in 91, but... He booked Pillman, Pillman much worse. better than Flair did. <laughs> yes. Yes. But yeah, July. Right. I did not remember that. I thought it was earlier. There we go. All right, so uh, let's go to the main show now. 
The Nasty Boys regained the WCW Tag Toss from Harlem Heat in 10:52. Sash came out by himself with the story being that Nas was injured earlier in the show. Match had good storyline and some good spots, but Sloppy Brawl in other spots. Particularly since Stevie Rage still doesn't show much. Booker T did a spin bump off a clothesline that got a real big pop. Sags DDT both guys at the same time and punched Sherry. Bischoff seemed embarrassed by that spot. Finally, Heat took over, but Sags made a comeback, which ended when he went to Sherry and, Sherry and Stevie took over on him. Sherry threw some hard slaps at Sags. Booker had a great somersault ledger off top of Sags for a near fall. Stevie followed with a leg drop off the ropes, which was embarrassing. Sags made a comeback, hitting the pile driver, and Nas showed up with his ribs all taped up and hot tagged at 9.30. Nas power slammed Sherry and threw over the top rope on the Stevie. Then power slammed Booker, and Sags pinned him at the above top rope. Two and a quarter stars. So it was pretty much a handicap match for the first nine and a half minutes. So Yes. Booker was very good here, though. Oh, yeah. And next was the interview building to the match of Blue Bloods, followed by Kevin Sullivan doing an interview. I think he was disoriented. That's just about every interview. During the interview, the audio and video were so far apart, it was distracting to watch. But the Nasty Boys and Harlem Heat, I mean, they they always, they pretty much always had entertaining matches. They might not have yes. been good, but they were entertaining. Yes. Now, meanwhile, what nobody knows is that they carefully shot a title switch back to Harlem Heat at the May 3rd Worldwide tapings. Mm-hmm. Where I bu- it was taped with Harlem Heat defending the titles mm-hmm. on TV, and also in that era, how when have you ever heard of them doing a short turnaround for a worldwide taping too? Um, although I forget, I, I'd have to check when it airs again, but it wasn't that long. It was maybe a month or so. Um, they tape it with Harlem Heat as champions. They don't show the entrances. Harlem Heat win with interference in the Blue Bloods. And then on TV, it's clear what happened because it's your winners and tag team champions with Harlem Heat acting shocked. Mm-hmm. So not new, not still, your winners and tag team champions. So yeah, it was planned, but now we have, uh, was this the third negative WCW tag team title reign? Uh, yeah. So wait, Freebirds, Nasty Boys, what's the other one? Because there was a third that we figured out, right? I can't remember off the top of my head. But there was, right? I'm not imagining it. Uh, it sounds right. Or was it a separate title? I think it was the titles, though. I feel like it always happened. It's WCW, so it's hard to figure out. But anyway. All right, so Kevin Sullivan... They faced the man with no name, the former butcher. In 524, with a thought foot stomp, no heat at all, particularly surprising since St. Petersburg was Sullivan's old stomping grounds in the early 80s. Bobby Heenan made a terribly dated reference when Bischoff talked about Sullivan giving up height to the former butcher. Heenan said he gives up a little bit of height to Webster, reference to his TV sitcom character that has to be 10 or 15 years out of date. That's not that many years out of date, Dave. Let's see, Web... 10... Uh, Webster started in 84. No, but when did it go off the air in first run, at least? Webster... 86? 87? Well, it's 95, so it's not it's, that far it's, off. It's eight years, so it, but it's 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 still less than a decade. Well, the thing, the thing is, though, Bix, 
in the nineties, you know, things from the eighties was kind of looked at differently. Yeah, it that show like, was all over it, syndication the, for a while, the, the, though. Too the, the thing, the thing about how we look at things now, we look at in nostalgia now, that didn't start until the nineties. Oh wait, I was wrong, basically. Chris. Chris, I miss. I didn't read far enough. ABC was through May '87. First run syndication was through '89. Oh, okay. So we're at a little over six years since the last new episode, and of course it's been airing in syndication and reruns too. So it's it. That's but, not. He didn't say different still, it, strokes. You know, like he. Yeah, but but Webster wasn't a hit though. For probably the first like '86. But he, but but what I'm trying to say is nostalgia wasn't looked at as fondly in the in the mid 90s as people look at nostalgia now it, that really didn't start until the internet started getting more and more because people started to pine for pine for their youth you know as as the I mean, it, it really starts with the culture when, when people where pop culture started getting bigger you know that's when it started you know getting more and more and more i mean I, the people started pining for the 60s and then in the nineties and stuff like that, you know, it just, but it's got more and more now with the internet. You know what I'm saying? As the internet's grown. Yes. Boy, this, that rain that we're getting loud, isn't it? The rain that you're getting. Not yes. Well, not, uh, not, in, not in lovely Georgia. No. It's dry the bone here. All right. Even though the finish would give one a different idea, the word we received that Hogan's influence saved Leslie's job. And they're going to portray him as a confused guy who slowly turns babyface and joins back with Hogan. Well, that's not what happens. After the match, though, we get a uh, glimpse into what is about to come to WCW for the next year plus. So let's go to the post-match shenanigans with Kevin Sullivan and his father. Kevin Sullivan! The Butcher really had control of this contest. For about 70 or 80 percent of the time. Oh, wait a minute. Look at that. Who is that? Oh my goodness. From the bowels of New York City to the Champs-Élysées in Paris to the slums. Of Singapore, all wearing the red and the yellow, the army of the immortal Hulk Hogan. What is Sullivan has gone into the people. He's getting out of here. He's terrified of that man, whoever that man is, or whatever he is. One One alone, the darkness. Solomon, come forth, my son. Maybe we should get out of here, too. I don't know, but what in the... Who is that? What is that? And where is Sullivan going? He's going for the exit. <clears throat> I don't think I can blame him. You heard what he said. Kevin Sullivan, come forth, my son. And Sullivan disappeared into the crowd. Let's let's go to Gene Oakland. Oh, man. What the heck? Well, I must say, this has been a night of surprises uh, here at Slamboree. The- <coughs> I'll say. Yeah. So uh, <coughs> so Dave talks about uh, 
King Carter disappearing on the screen, blah, 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 while someone wandered aimlessly around the building. In the days for this show, they taped weeks and weeks, like 14 of them were vignettes with Sullivan and Ikea to get the Dungeon of Doom heel group with the new giant, the great white shark, John Tenta, and Kimala off the ground of half a star. Yeah, so yeah, uh, Dungeon of Doom started almost two months before Flair, before Sullivan got the book from Flair. Yes. We all forget that, don't we? Well, it's Hogan. Yes. And this is Sullivan doing this to appease Hogan. You know? Yes. It's Sullivan getting this done to do that. Yes. Also, it may even be more obvious here than on some of the Nitros we paid clips of. Just where exactly Excalibur gets the sing-songing he does sometimes from. <laughs> Definitely influenced by one Eric Bischoff, isn't he? Yes, which I never would have guessed until I noticed it. <clears throat> yeah. All right, Wahoo McDaniel pinned Dick Murdoch in the Legends match after a Tomahawk chop in 618. They put this match on in black and white to make it look authentic. Wrong era for these guys, though. <laughs> well, HBO did this in uh, the 2000s for the Arturo Gatti-Mickey Ward fight, their third fight, where they had like Jim Lampley and Larry Merchant and those guys using like 1950s microphones and stuff like that and broadcast – think the first round completely in black and white they try to say it was a throwback to the to the old days of the 50s and 60s and stuff like that yeah so i get what they're trying to do but with these two guys no because they i mean think about it i mean both these guys were working in national wrestling promotions just six years earlier so also they're they in murdoch you know, starts mid to late sixties. Wahoo was around the same time. You know, like but but like by the time they're stars, it's mainly on color TV. Always on color TV, you know, unless I mean it was broadcasting color TV. I mean, yes, not everybody yes, had yes. color TVs. Yeah, but anyway, Wahoo, who still works the Indies in the Carolinas, regularly looked ancient. Going slowly, made a terribly dated reference number two. Saying how Wahoo ended the career of Rick Casares, a Chicago Bears running back in the early 60s, as if Casares was a well-known name. As if anyone watching the Hogan cartoon shows would have a clue who Rick Casares was. Rick Casares was the fullback on the Chicago Bears um, in the 50s and 60s when uh, they had won the NFL championship in 63. He was a known guy. And he had went and played... For the Dolphins in 66. And Wahoo was on that Dolphins team. I think they was on the. I know he played for the Dolphins. I think it may have been that same year. And I think what Wahoo did was he injured him in training camp. Mm-hmm. But that's a whole nother story. Um, Murdoch got a bloody nose. Very sad to watch. Dud. And that's being charitable. Murdoch looked fine here, though. It's this is Dave though looking at these guys and thinking about what they were, you know, and yeah. not what what this is about that this is a legends match or what have you. I get I get where Dave's coming from on on that, you know, because it, it, you want you got guys here that you watch when they were in their prime and 
when they were some of the best workers in the world, and you see them at this point in time, and they're they're older and just not what they were, and it get, that's gonna get disappointing. So I I get it, but anyway, it served its purpose. <clears throat> Gray Muta then retained the IWGP Heavyweight Title, pinning Mister Wonderful Paul Orndorff for fourteen eleven with the moonsault. Really dull. They knew it'd be bad because Orndorff's slow-paced old style is all wrong for Muto, and Muto's inconsistent to begin with. But it was a surprise just how bad. Muto did his four signature spots. Power elbow drop, handspring elbow, face buster, moonsault. But that was the entire match, half a star. Yeah, this sucked. <clears throat> but it's like, it's Muto doing Muto at this point in time, you know? Mm-hmm. The great Muto is, this in Japan, is this type of guy. It's not the 1989 Great Muta anymore. Now, if he's Muto, you're gonna get you're gonna get his working shoes. But if yes. he's Muta, you know, get ready for all the bells and whistles and bullshit. Yeah, but there's not really any bells and whistles. It's just bullshit. And, well, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't work in America, especially because somebody like Paul Orndorff. So, Paul Orndorff was you know was good at what he did, but it didn't fit this. Hmm. And New Japan wasn't happy about this either, So, but we'll talk about that when we get to New Japan. All right, uh, next, Arn Anderson retained the WCW World Television title, pinning Alex Wright, Dust Lundekin, in 11.36 after a DDT. Bischoff's embarrassing line was excitedly to talk about how Wright has the crowd behind him, as there was a total lack of response to Wright's ring entrance. Started slow, but the psychology was there and built to a good match. Unlike most Wright matches, there were no obvious missed spots, three stars. <clears throat> yeah, Dave was right earlier when we talked about Arn. Arn's the perfect guy to have, a, you know, against Alice Wright yes. at this point in time. Yes, although it feels like the Pillman fe- series, I almost said feud, but it's not really a feud, uh, is really where he starts to get over the hump, though. You put that, you put this version of Alex Wright in the, in today's wrestling climate. He'd be one of the biggest stars in the business. Absolutely. Absolutely. And also, you watch his <clears throat> earliest WCW matches from about a year earlier. I don't think people were appreciating just how much he was improving. Yeah. Because well, he, he was super green when he came in. It's super young. Yeah. So, yeah, it's understandable. Yeah, and I mean, by late in the year, he's as, pretty much as good as anyone on the roster. I thought he was going to be, I thought he was going to become a big star in the business. He had the health problems and stuff, though. So, I mean, I mean, this one time in '95, I I would have thought he would have been one of the biggest stars in the business in you know a few years. Well, that's what I'm saying, though. Like the brain aneurysm and stuff really derailed. Well, I wasn't, well, I wasn't expecting that. So, I'm not well, saying. That's, well, that's what I'm saying. I'm saying that the main thing that derailed his career was not anything in anyone's control. No, but it did seem like that he was kind of being. De-emphasize before all that happens, but that way he didn't fit what WCW was trying to do at that time no. with who they had in charge. So, <clears throat> all right. So next we get Mean going to double counter with Hawk at 4:41. Hawk's interest drew the first big interest pop of the show, even with the angle before the show. The match got no heat once the bell rang, except when Hawk popped up at the Mink's pile driver. Hawk's offense looks bad, and his ability to sell is legendary. <laughs> they did a pull apart afterwards. Two recognizable faces in the pull apart were Ricky Santana, who worked under a mask early in the show, and Jeff Gaylord, who was in town for the AWF taping in Tampa two days earlier, 
and apparently looking for a job. Quarter of a star. Jeff Gaylord. And yes, there was AWTV taping in, in that area, but nothing came out about it. <laughs> oh, then it happened. And it, it never aired, as far as I know. Yeah, because weren't the tapings from 95 that aired all taped in the Chicago area? Um, yes. Yeah, that's weird. I, I think a lot of the 96 tapings are, too. There were there was some other taping they did, I remember, at some other place, but that was during the 96 run. <clears throat> but that was, I think, in, in, the, in that area, though. In Florida so, or still in Chicago, you mean? In the... You know, in that Chicago, Minnesota type area, yeah. Hmm. Midwest. Interesting. So, Jeff Gaylord. Imagine that. All right. Yes, so, next Chris we get, good friend, Jeff Gaylord. That's right. Next, we get the Hall of Fame, which was hosted by Gordon Soley. Before it started, Bobby Heenan complained that he wasn't inducted, which actually behind the scenes was actually behind the scenes controversy going on because Heenan wanted it at this show because he lives in the Tampa area. They eventually promised him they'd induct him next year. Well, guess what? Guess what? This is the last year of a le- the Legends reunion. <laughs> yes. There's still Slamboree until, you know, 2000, the last year. With what, what's your feeling on that? <clears throat> what's your feeling on that? As far as what? Stopping, the, stopping this. I was a fan of it. I didn't like that they got rid of it. At least keep the Hall of Fame. It makes you wonder why. Whose call was it? Was it I, Bischoff? I would think so. Yeah, <clears throat> or Hogan, perhaps, maybe, or something like that. Maybe. <clears throat> well, Wahoo was first. He gave a speech talking about his memorable matches with Johnny Valentine, Harley Race, Gene Kaniski, the Funks, and Ric Flair. Terry Funk came out next, giving a speech about his family. Yes, which was interesting in that Terry Funk has only been off TV for about six months, and he was a total babyface. <laughs> well, he's retired, Bix. <laughs> you know, he's working in ECW in a yes. way. But he's not full-time in ECW at this point either. Nobody's so back. He, he, yeah, yeah, he's back, but he's I mean, he's not full-time. So, Well, yeah, but the the cactus match was like a week earlier. Yeah. He he's started, just started doing all that angle, yeah. Yeah. Edge Lopafo was Dex. It doesn't only because of the angle they were going to run later in the show, as he wasn't a Hall of Fame caliber wrestling star, whatever that means. <clears throat> Soli said that Poffo had the world record with 6,033 sit-ups, which hasn't been broken. Poffo one time did hold the record, but it was broken more than 30 years ago. Probably by the time Rick Caceres was an NFL star. <laughs> See, that's a good call. The, the current record is 65,000. Antonio Noki was next. With his name embarrassingly misspelled on the graphic as Anoki. <laughs> w, everybody. W, everybody. They showed the clips from North Korea and mentioned the crowd calling a world record 190,000 fans. But none where Flair was shown in the ring opposite Anoki, nor in the talk of the crowd was Flair ever acknowledged as his opponent. Although he eventually will be. Anoki had an interpreter, Ken Tanjima one of the most famous interpreters in Japan, who is the main English language interpreter for the Toyota Automobile Corporation, he gave the speech. Just because of Nosh to pass, it was still strange seeing Noki and Terry Funk a few feet apart on the same stage. The one thing Dave Grass seen in Noki is that of all the wrestlers of our generation, he's the only one who took the fiction con and succeeded in actually making it reality. 
He did that. Even Hogan, who came cl- the closest besides Inoki, really was never accepted by American society as anything more than a joke except among wrestling fans. This guy not only ran for the Senate, but got elected. He was a good wrestler in his prime, but his rep was a triumph of hype and incredible self-promotion of her ability. And he crossed that same rep over outside the wrestling arena in a way nobody else has ever been able to, to do except El Santo. And that was in a totally different way. Mm-hmm. I mean, I feel like even though he's not saying it here, Dave is treating Anoki being a tough guy as a work when we know at this point that it's not. I just love Anoki having to use an interpreter like he you knows like he ain't speaking I know. English. I always well, he's not the only one, <laughs> but I always love that. I know. I know. It's funny when that happens. They did end up Big John Studd with his son Robert, John Jr., giving a speech. Dusty Rhodes, which being in St. Petersburg drew a huge reaction, was inducted next. And what was put on in a surprise, Rhodes decided to talk about somebody else. So let's go to the American dream, shall we? Acting. And she left me there to dance the tide. And in closing, if... One thing that these gentlemen up here with me have brought you through the years, it was a tremendous amount of blood, sweat, and tears. And to the new generation that is here now in this great, talented WCW, boys, you better put them on tight and lace them up if you're going to follow in these gentlemen's footsteps right here. God bless you. I love you. Thank you. I like how everyone is physically uncomfortable holding Oh, I almost forgot one thing. There's one other inductee tonight. Look at Gordon. I came to Tampa, Florida. Eddie Graham says, I want you to meet the man that is the greatest announcer in the history of sports. All right, pause. Gene had walked out. Gordon was like, what? When this is another inductee, Gene had walked out and Gordon looks at Gene and as Dusty saying when he said, Gene's pointed right at Gordon. So now Gordon knows that all right, something's coming here. All well, right, so this is a work anyway, though. So I know. I know. I walked up to Gordon Soli and I said, Gordon Soli, I'm going to make you famous. And about that time, Muhammad Ali and Cassius Clay was copying me and no Gordon. And they were going all over the country. And Gordon Soley stayed steady to the task. Gordon Soley was a man that always called it like he's seen it. He was a man that brought excitement to the sport of professional wrestling. There has never been, there is never going to be, and never will be, an announcer like Gordon Soley. Gordon Soley is a heart... Soli is the heart, the love, and the sounding board for this sport. All other announcers are walk behind us when Gordon Soli is concerned. It is great pride and great privilege that WCW makes his newest member to the Hall of Fame in 1995. The Dean himself, the man, Gordon Soli. Let's get funky like a monkey, baby.
out. Well, this is a dream come true, really. Uh, to be honored in, in the Hall of Fame is something that I, I really never felt was, was possible in, in my I, Thanks to WCW, its board of directors, uh, to everybody concerned. But, you know, and I look out there tonight and I see so many fathers and mothers with their young sons. And I know that they used to uh, watch me years ago and now their children are coming up. And you are indeed the greatest wrestling fans in the world. And I do thank you, each and every one of you, Dusty and... and these gentlemen, I'll tell you what, I'm awed to be in their presence. I really am. And again, I, I, I thank you very, very much. I, I, I think we go to Gene Okerlund now, don't we? All right, let's, let's go to Gene Okerlund. Again, thank you so very much. And by the way, Gordon Sully, I want to add my congratulations. What an honor. Now seven men, seven more, WCW Hall of Fame. Well, Gene made it back to the back quick, didn't he? <laughs> well, we don't know how far from the thing they are. but <clears throat> Gordon did a good job making it seem spontaneous, though. Yeah, we'll talk about that as we, uh, later on. But, uh, it, I mean, if anybody deserved to be in it, it's him as an announcer, for yeah. God's sakes. I mean... He was the guy. So, and where they're at, St. Petersburg. Yeah, Bayfront Center. I mean, it's perfect. So, yeah, a, a great moment there. All right, Sting beat Big Bubba Rogers with a Scorpion Deathlock in 929. First half was slow. Second half saw Sting put a table on the floor and slam Bubba on the table. Bubba threw powder in Sting's eyes and threw him into the table. Bubba set the table in the ring, threw Sting into it. After Sting reversed the pile driver, he threw Bubba into the table and went for the Stinger Splash, but Bubba moved and Sting hit the table. Bubba whipped him with his belt, hit Bubba slam for a near fall. Sting hit a splash off top for a near fall, then put the table on Bubba, gave him a double foot stomp, put the Scorpion on for a submission. Give Bubba credit as far as the finish goes for being a lot more of a pro than most of his reputation would have been. Two and three quarter stars. This was a death match, allegedly, wasn't it? <clears throat> or yes. a lights out match, maybe? I think it was a death match, whatever that meant. It was basically not no DQ. Yeah, yeah. I just why not say no DQ? I I don't know, but this is a good match, and yeah, you could tell Sting liked working with him. Well, who wouldn't? Well, yes. You know, if Bubba was willing, is playing ball, and you know, I mean, he, good lord, I mean, you get a big guy like that, it makes you look like a million dollars. I mean, hell yeah. And this run here is really his last good period in the ring, but yeah, yes, yes. in ninety five, he just yes. falls apart in ninety six. Mm-hmm. But here, you know, he has the Sting feud, the tags with Avalanche against Sting and Savage are fun. He has a good match or two with Alex Wright. There's more I'm forgetting, but he he's very good here still. Oh yeah. And we get the main event. Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage beat Ric Flair and Vader in 1857 when Hogan leg dropped Flair. At the beginning of the match, and another point during the match, they showed brief glimpses of Paul White, the giant who's being groomed to be Hogan's next challenger for Halloween Havoc and Star Arcade, who a lot of people believe, who a lot of people thought was Diesel. 
He's said to be legit seven foot one, four hundred forty pounds, or maybe build upward of seven foot six. Andre was six foot nine, six foot ten, got away with being seven foot four, seven foot five most of his career. Aaron knows a reference to him looking like he's eight feet tall. There was talk of building him as the son or nephew of Andre the Giant, but Dave doesn't think they'd do that because too many would know it wasn't the case. Just you, you wait, wait, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> Renegade got almost no pop coming out, even though the interest was choreographed to deliver a big pop. Arn Anderson and Jimmy Hart was also ringside while Angelo Papa was in the front row. This is the only match on the show with real heat, but it wasn't a good match. Hogan, Savage, and Flair all looked old and past their prime. And Vader was holding back so much, everyone recognized it. Flair did a slip to the buckles at their Savage Whip, ran across the apron with a Hogan boot. Arn distracted Hogan, allowing Flair to clip him and work on the knee. The Hogan was slower and more lethargic than usual with bad timing, which says something considering he wasn't working with mediocre wrestlers. Hogan looked real bad to the point Vader couldn't carry him. Flair can still do his routine, but he doesn't have it anymore. Again, we're in 1995 here. Flair hit a splash, Vader hit a splash and missed a second, giving Savage a hot tag at 12.20. Savage hit the up top on Flair, but Arm pulled Savage off Flair and out of the ring. Flair came back on Savage. Vader moonsaw the Savage, but Hogan made the save. In spots, Flair and Savage showed glimpses of hot action. Hogan made a hot tag in 16.50, but looked really tired and worn out. He slammed Vader for a big pop, punched Arn. As we put a leg drop on Flair, Arn tripped him and Vader splashed him. Flair went for a pin on Hogan, but of course, nobody would ever live to see that day. After Superman comeback, Arn came off the top rope. Hogan moved, Arn hit Flair. Stage wanted that breakup. Best in order to pacify Flair and Arn, who have pulled. Hogan wants them out of his business on top so he can work with the Giants and Freaks so they can feel with each other, so they can stay out of Hogan and Savage's business. Both camps can be happy that they're in major programs. And Flair can be happy he's working with someone who takes pride in having good matches. How about that? And Hogan led drop on Flair for the pin. After the match, the heels beat up the faces, and they were working on Savage when Poffo hopped the guard rather break it up. Arn held Poffo in the full Nelson, and Flair threw some punches and put him in the figure four. As Bischoff screamed, they were doing it to a 70-year-old man before Savage made to save star on three quarters. All right, well, let's watch this finish, and we'll talk about uh, the stuff going on here. Well, let's get past the finish. Let's just see Angelo. And all that. Well, that's what, yeah, well, the, 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 the angle, yes. Because it's not right after. Oh, look at this. Ric Flair right in front of Angelo Poffo. guy's got a heart after all. Ric Flair, more than I thought he would. He's saying, that's my son. The match is over. Oh, no, 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 no. What is he doing? He's punching Mr. Poffo out. What is he, he's lost his mind. Jesus. <laughs> what the fuck? Arn just threw, threw that Angelo Poffo like a sheet of paper. And it bounced his head off the map. What the fuck? <laughs> I did not... Wow! Okay, I have to see that again. No, no, no! Flair's... What is he doing? Go ahead and him on the punches. What is he... He's lost his mind! <laughs> I don't know if his head hit the map. His his head if if it didn't hit the mat it he I don't think like it him. did I don't think it did you think that's him tucking and then untucking uh, his back hit uh, and now the network's doing and, its thing of course but yeah I don't it 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 didn't look like his head hit the mat it not from up, where though. I well it impact from his back when it do that I think. Right there. He's got a heart after all. Ric Flair, more than I thought he would. He's saying, that's my son. I wish there's a way you could slow it. No, 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 no! 
We don't see him hit. No, his yeah. back, his Bob is back is mad. Arn should have taken better care. This is a disgrace! They're gonna cripple that man! Angelo Papa's gonna be crippled! This is a disgrace! This is a 70-year-old man! Now he sounds more like Nike. <laughs> shut up, Heaton! There's no, nothing to up. laugh about here! What, what a great reaction to this heavy heat down. You have no business whatsoever. You have no business laughing at it. He's all caught up in his Hulkamania, just like you are. And that's what happens when you get caught up in Hulkamania. Ric Flair, <laughs> forget about fines, forget about suspensions. He should be in jail. He should be locked up. And Vader went along with him. <clears throat> but the bad thing is, Randy Macho Man Savage, when this sinks in to what Flair and Vader did to his father, he is going to snap. He's going to lose his mind. Come on, man. Oh, I don't want to be in 10 miles of that man. This is disgusting. Look at him. Look at him. He's breaking down. He's crying his eyes out. That's his father. That is his father, who was just inducted into the Hall of Fame and now is rendered helpless thanks to Ric Flair and Vader. And Savage is beside himself. Randy Savage now attending to his father, and we are running short of time. I would hope that we were going to get an update and talk to somebody. They got to get him out of the ring. Please get an ambulance. They're calling for an ambulance. Please, please get an ambulance. Please. Fans, what a way to leave you, but on this note, well, we Bobby the Brain Heat and I'm Eric. Cheeto Santana coming out. We'll see you from St. Petersburg. We see Ken Kent. I mean, that sounded like it's 1990 theme music. Yeah. You want to go through the credits? Oh, here we go. All right, mute. All right, so we got our credits going here. All right, keep it playing. Just mute it. Okay. I guess we'll only mention any particularly notable <laughs> names. Well, Tony Schiavone was the first name on there, producer. Craig Leathers yeah, and Craig Yoder. Leathers. Yeah. All right, keep it going. Let's Neil see Pruitt. here. Neil Pruitt. Yes. Annette Yoder. There's Annette Yoder. Yes. Uh, no one I recognize here. No, that's just audio. Uh, keeps going here. Uh, Jackie Crockett, of course. Yeah, Rick Lasseter. Cameraman, we recommend re- well, recognize <clears throat> here. No, Oz Coleman by this point. No, Rick no. Little is a uh, part of the camera team. Mike Weber. Mike Weber. Marketing promotions. Yes. Kimper Rogers, who was always on here for online editing. Yes. Yes, and was. Uh, Wait, per, per, Kemper Rogers, yeah, yeah, he was their editor for a long time. and Years. Uh, yes, and also try to experiment with being a music video director, which... That's right. Okay, since it came up, I don't doubt that he remembers it that way, but when Scotty Riggs says that the Bagwell Scotty Riggs video set to that adult contemporary era aha song actually aired on mtv it didn't right that's just a thing kemper rogers made as a sizzle reel to show off his directorial skills right it may not air into it, it could it may air on one of the mother music video channels and but Scott, was it an on official MTV. aha video i don't know i never saw anything but wcw all that's right. what i'm saying i've never seen that video outside of youtube so yeah all right william bird will bird will bird yeah Wendy Tarbuckle. Oh, no, it's Woody, Woody, Woody Gear, excuse me. Yeah. I said Wendy. Yeah. Right. Um, 
and Bird, of course, would produce ECW on TNN. Patreon.com slash Between the Sheets for more on that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, oh, Beyond Belief Productions for Pyrotechnics. Yeah. Wayne, Col- Wayne Cooper. Excuse me. I thought that said Wayne Coulter. <laughs> Moses Williams, a notable uh, witness in the racial discrimination lawsuit. <laughs> and Doug Dillinger, of course, security director. So there's that. Janie Angle. Oh, here we go. Wrestling operations. Janie Engel, Jody Hamilton, and Marty Lundy. Say, wasn't there so a wrestler you, named it, Marty Lundy? Well, well, this is how you know Flair's still booking. Yes. <laughs> so, there you go. I uh, got your other stuff here. Awesome promotions. Zane Braslov here, event coordinator. Yeah. Yes. His legal beagle, Gary Juster. Of course. Special thanks to, I guess, local people. You got your unions on there. Yeah. Supervised producer Keith Mitchell and Craig Leathers. Why did they cut to a crowd shot suddenly during the credits? Uh, BB production David Crockett. That was a bad joke. Uh, Executive producer, senior vice president, Eric Bischoff. Yay. Okay. So there you go. Yep. Slammery 95. <clears throat> and, oh, I should mention, too, I, I wanted to make sure that I remember this right in the cover story of the torch not the actual review uh wade mentions when the baby faces finally cleared the ring of the heels papa was still on the mat as savage frantically called for an ambulance as if potential ligament damage to the knee is a life or death situation it's still worth of an ambulance <laughs> he's old yeah all right so dave uh says wcw is outwardly claiming a point eight by every slam beret this is uh the observer after but within the company, it's no secret they'd be thrilled based on the returns to come out with a 0.6, a 0.65, which nobody's trying to spend a successful return. Sources not within WCW's office claim that the number circulating within WCW for the buy rate was a 0.57, the same as independent sources. Some in Titan claim the figure to be as low as 0.5. If we were to accept Titan's numbers, not only did this show strongly, strongly outdistance WCW when it came to buys, but also would have drawn more money if we were to accept WCW's numbers. Titan barely had more buy-ins, but WCW would have blown them away when it comes to revenue. Independently, we can estimate that Titan's last review, that's the In Your House. The, the first, first one, In Your yeah. House. Do, it did a, at 187,000 buy-ins and 1.26 million company grows. WCW can be estimated 130,000 buy-ins and a 1.46 million company grows, of which an estimated $365,000 would be Hogan's share. Nice work if you can get it. Nobody seems to be disputing the buy rate's disappointment. It brings up the obvious questions as to why, particularly when it's pretty well proved, been, been well proven with it WCW that the main event is the biggest factor in drawing. And on paper, from the marquee standpoint, this is an excellent main event. Bader's on a drawing card on his own, but has proven with both Flair and Hogan that in the right circumstances, he could be in a headline match that does big business. Randy Savage isn't a drawing card on his own anymore either, but a celebrity and certainly shouldn't be a weak link and keep him from buying a tag match on top. It was a pay-per-view return of Flair, who's the biggest star of the company history, and Hogan, who's the greatest drawing card in the United States of this era. So what went wrong? Because something obviously did in a big way. Some are saying Hogan's drawing power is diluted when he's in a tag match. The retirement of Flair, as far as an event that would build for a future return, was incredibly botched. In hindsight, beyond belief, the buy rate showed that almost nobody even cared about him returning. He'd already jobbed for Hogan in a pay-per-view match he wasn't even a participant in, and had jobbed easy to Hogan twice last year. There's no mileage left for Flair on top when his return after a seven-month angle flopped against the two most famous names in the business. But the real question, Mark, once again comes back to Hogan. 
Flair can honestly put in the semifinals and have his typical good matches, whether it be on Arn Anderson or anyone else, or if he slipped that much, maybe on the average matches. It's pretty well impossible that his matches will be any worse than what WWE has been presenting on Pay-Per-View. So in that regard, his being on the shows is a positive to all, but those clinging on to wanting the days of the old Ric Flair back as world champion, which could never happen again unless you switch to the following Shawn Michaels' career. It's unless you switch to following Shawn Michaels' career. Flair's matches at this point, no matter who the foe is, aren't going to sell tickets or buys, but they need to be in a position on the show where that doesn't matter. If Hogan can't draw, the company's up the creek and everyone knows it. If .57 is simply a sign that Hogan's fans no longer interested in seeing him leg drop Flair after the storyline from the very start was that Flair wasn't even serious competition, that's the one That's one thing, and it isn't good because it shows Hogan's fans are losing interest in Hogan. If .57 is a sign that Hogan's legs, that due to leg dropping, are wearing out, WCW has no chance. This preview delivered only slightly more revenue, and because of the Hogan cut, substantially less profit than the company was doing before Hogan came. Those looking for evidence that Hogan's experiment was going to be a bad idea in the long run, finally have something more than they personally don't like it as proof. It could also have simply been that, after all these months, the buyer is simply a reflection of WCW presenting one bad show after another. <clears throat> all right, let, let's stop here for, for this. Okay, here's the thing with Hogan, and, and Dan was talking about it during the rundown. This is probably the... This may be the worst Hogan was in WCW in this era right here. Um, it's either this or, or one year later in 96. It seems like both of these spring runs of Hogan are his worst runs. This one in 96. Yeah. Cause at least like at other times he was, he had been capable of having decent matches. At least here he's dragging down a tag team match with Ric Flair, Vader and Randy Savage. Yes. And then a year later, he's involved with all of those same people again, and it's pretty much the same thing. Yes. Do you think that it's Hogan? Here's here's a question. As Dave brings it up, Hogan was wanting to work with the Giants, the Freaks, and all that stuff. Do you think this is Hogan not wanting to work with these guys? Hmm. That he's he's not interested in it? That he's more interested in working with the Freak Shows? Probably. That's what he I'm knows he's too. got his Paul White waiting in the wings, who he found. I'm sure he's itching Wait. for that renegade heel turn he wanted so he can get his win back from the Ultimate Warrior. Which, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting hmm. that we we only got one pay-per-view match between those two singles in that era? That yeah, we all don't the other the, ones the, are... Well, well, the rematch, the, the second... Yeah, the second match is in, in, in the, the rest of the NWO era. We only got one singles match between Hogan and, and Giant in the Dungeon of Doom era. Mm-hmm. That's pretty crazy how that worked out. Especially considering Hogan and Seth Solomon's involved. He's the booker. Hmm. That is weird. But yeah, I mean, uh, Dave spelled it out earlier. I mean, you, you do the flare arm split so you can put them together and let them do their BS and get out of Hogan's way and while Hogan can do his thing with his, the people he wants to do, do it with. <clears throat> and, you know, we really don't get the big singles matches other than the Halloween Havoc match with Hogan and, and, and Giant. And, and you know, on, well, Dave calls it out here. Hogan and Giant was on the books for Starcade. It should have happened at Starcade. But Hogan doesn't even wear Starcade at all. Nope. World Cup of Wrestling. Yeah. 
very weird. Now, I want to talk about Flair and Savage, but Dave's about to talk about it, so we'll read this and continue. <clears throat> WCW's well aware of potential problems drawing with a Flair Savage main event. As soon as the numbers started coming in last week, Hogan was asked to be in Dayton for the Great American Bash pay-per-view on June 18th. It's too late to change television and the booking to put him in the main event. So they're stuck with Flair and Savage on top. A match on the surface looks like it has no chance to draw. The two have a theoretically strong issue and are coming off a big angle. But as we've seen in the past, great angles where wrestlers that have no marketability don't draw money. If Flair's marketability is not existent the way he's allowed himself to be portrayed, an TV match with Alice Wright coming before he's put in a position where he has to draw money on top is so mind-boggling as Squish and Sandy have all involved that okayed it. This is going to be a tough sell to say the least. That angle is going to have to have work to one hell of a degree to sell tickets to the casual fans. The ones who swell are constricted buy rates. Just like today. So they are going to try and hide the idea that Hogan's going to be at the show, even though he isn't wrestling as a way of luring Hogan fans not to skip this one. Even though Hogan isn't wrestling, it's certainly just most difficult. Flair is really poo-pooing a potential Flair Savage series. Boy, little does he know what uh, they would do in the long, in, in the future. Yeah. <laughs> and I think a part of that is, you know, not just maybe this angle, but just the fact it's Flair and Savage, and then you go to the next year when you add the Elizabeth thing to that whole deal. Good Lord. Which, by the way, since we never talk about it that way, and it really hit me here, like, we've talked about it a little bit before in this context, but still, holy shit, does Liz der- deserve a lot more credit for that business turnaround in 96? Yes. Absolutely. Her turning, her coming back and then quickly turning is what made that draw. And and her performance in that role. Yes. Yeah, she, who would have expected her to be as good in that heel valet role as she was? Well, we saw the signs of it in the early WWF run. Well, she was never entirely a heel. She was just more enthusiastically with Savage. Call CM Video, Randy Macho Man Savage. Watch that. See, if you rewatch it, it's not that heelish. I don't know about all that. I I used to remember it the way you do, but when she's like fielding the offers from the famous men's magazine and stuff, it's not that heelish. <clears throat> I, to, I I always thought she came off pretty damn heelish. It she comes off more heelish than her other stuff, but so doesn't exactly take much. But anyway, I mean, yeah, I mean she she definitely was a big part of that. Absolutely. But again, it's always it's interesting reading this Flair Savage stuff and what's going to happen. All right, uh, Torch. <clears throat> Mayor Bischoff appeared live on WCB's 900 line answering caller questions after Slamboree. He said he believed Craig Pittman could hold his own against Dan Severin. He criticized the recent In Your House review for being merely a Monday Night Raw without commercials for 15 bucks. Now, on the question of whether WCW and WF would ever have a Super Bowl of wrestling, Bischoff said it would be more likely Ted Turner would buy the WF for Vincent Mann. <laughs> uh, also interesting being that we know WCW executives had been making overtures to the WWF for a few years about a Super Bowl of wrestling. Yes. But don't let that get in the way of the story. Two key individuals involved in this promotion had tragedies take place the week of the show. Promoter Zane Breslau's mother passed away a few days before the show and he missed the event. Jimmy Hart got word of his mother passing away just before the main event started. Sadie Hart, 84 years old, was on her way to the show 
when she was involved in a fatal head-on automobile collision. Even though he was said to be the emotional wreck almost anyone would be in the situation, he still came out and played his role in the main event. Ooh. <clears throat> it gives you uh, some more respect for Jimmy Hart, doesn't it? Yes. This man's mother was killed on her way to the show. He still went out and did his job. Yeah. In a car wreck, man. Mm. <clears throat> that unexpected something like that happening, man. That's the worst. Mm-hmm. You know, when some when when you have something like somebody like that that's you know been sick for a while, and you kind of have that sense that it's going downhill. You know, you it's still tough to to you know deal with, but you know it's coming. Something like this where it's just. You just get word, oh, your mom was in a fatal crash. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's just like, oh, my God. I don't know. I, I'd be a complete wreck. I couldn't function. And this man came out there and did his job, and you wouldn't even know anything was wrong if you watched him. So, yeah. Much read Jimmy Hart. Lots of talk backstage. Alex Wright doing the job on the pay-per-view for Arn Anderson was an example of Hogan's power over Flair's. Flair supposedly won the TV title on right, and Hogan wants it on the Renegade. Who do you think wins out? Brother. <laughs> Alex Wright is TV champion at this point in time. It would have been better than Renegade. You know, it absolutely would have been better than Renegade. It would have been interesting to see how his career would have changed if that happened. Mm-hmm. You know? Yep. But this is Hogan scoring more on the booker. So. Among those backstage at Slamboree were <clears throat> Victor Quinones, Miguel Perez Jr., while Jim Powers and Hercules were among those there for the AWF taping and then came up here and looking for jobs. Uh, oh. What? I wonder, how Victor, I wonder how Victor felt when he uh, saw Alex Wright for the first time. And so I tried to book him, you know? Uh, I hope that's all he tried to do. Well... <clears throat> Man, keys to the sports car. Something like that. Drive yeah. around a little bit. Apparently backstage at Slamboree, they wanted Michael Buffer to announce the Sting Bubba match, but he informed them that his new deal with WCW was to only announce one match per show. That's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because he would announce more than one match in, in the, at the early days. NWA and WCW titles. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. But, it, it, um, you know... It, you're going to you're going to get that let's get ready to rumble one time and that's it. Yeah. It's too bad because he always had <clears throat> in the early days of buffer which this would still classify as that era. If he's announced like the semi main event on a boxing show, it isn't let's get ready to rumble. You remember do you remember what it was? I remember there was a thing. <clears throat> Man your battle stations. <laughs> <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Sherry Martell's lip was swollen a bit from Jerry Slack's Jerry Slack. Jerry Sacks' slap on the show. I can see Sherry telling the stiffer too. Yeah. He did. During the Haunt Ming match when they did the pull apart, they were rounding up guys backstage at the very last minute to do it. They couldn't do it for the show because they kept the Hawk Angle secret from everyone until it happened and paid guys like Jeff Gaylord 150 balls apiece. <laughs> he got a payday. I'd hope so. Hawk would make more appearance. Make more appearances on major shows. His coming in was a major secret that few in the company knew about. Okay. And um, I mean, what? And you know what? I mean, he hadn't been there in a while, 
So no, it was a cool surprise. Yeah. <clears throat> Torch, Kevin Sullivan's new group, which replaced the three faces of fear, will include the repackaged Avalanche King Curtis, who played a role Sullivan's mentor, which we talked about in the re- semi report. If Brian Pillman and Steve Austin are put back together as a tag team, it won't happen until late July at the earliest because each has Japan commitments. If Austin doesn't get hurt, I mean, this sounds like it's obviously the plan. So how different is it if Austin doesn't get hurt? I just realized something. Yeah. Chris, who is Steve Austin's manager at the time? Uh, Parker. Who ends up managing the team that ends up uh, breaking the Nasty Boys Harlem Heat streak? Uh, Colonel Parker. With Buck and Slater, yeah. Yep. So, does this mean that they took the place of a reconstituted Hollywood Blondes with Colonel Parker? <clears throat> Very possible. Makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. Back to the torch. The Patriot gave notice to WCW and starting to get a new push in all Japan. While former tag partner Marcus Bagwell recently signed a two-year deal and remained with WCW. So that's why he wasn't there as well. You know, he was in Japan, he gave notice. Which makes you wonder how many people knew that. And when did he give notice? That, did he give it before the pay-per-view? <laughs> he might have gave notice to him and I forgot. WCW. Dale Willis gave his notice to the Patriot and didn't give him notice. Oh, okay. <laughs> uh, staying with the torch. There are no definite plans for Harlem Heat. None of the Blue Bloods have replaced the Steiners in Refume Refum- the Nasty Boys. The slight angle where Heat would turn babyface and Sherry would join the Blue Bloods has been put on hold, if not scratched. Little Holy does, shit! Well, also, little does Wade know that they already taped the title switch back. <laughs> yeah, but could you imagine Sherry with the Blue Bloods? That would be fun. Oh, God. That would be fantastic. Sherilyn. <laughs> that would be, be awesome. Sherilyn Lady, la- Lady Sher- Sherilyn Martell, yes. L- Lady Sherilyn. Yeah, so this is, yeah, the Steiners were supposed to be in this around this time, so... There you go. All right, let's go to WCW Saturday night. Once again, in Statement of Torch, this show was one hour due to Atlanta Braves baseball. Boo. Don't you boo them. This is their World Series year. Tony, Tony and Bobby opened the program. He needed to talk about seeing Flair like you've never seen him before, Slamboree. Yeah, looking like he was old and beat up. Um, Johnny Bad beat Playboy Bobby Starr in the opening match. Then Ming won a squash over a named opponent. Colonel Parker came out and talked about his match on main event against Brian Pillman. An air there for the Power Plant Training Center. They listed a phone number that people can call if they want to try it out on May 24, 25th, and 26th. When ABC's Good Morning America will be there live. Huh. Oakland hosted the Slamberry Control Center and employed his 900 line with information on recent dismissals from WCW. Kevin Sullivan with new intro music squashed Barry Houston. Hey. During the match, Bobby Heenan speculated that Diamond Dolls Page didn't win his money in Las Vegas, but it's actually spending Diamond Dolls inheritance money. No, it's actually that she won the millions of dollars playing bingo at a bingo hall somehow. <laughs> well, we get a skit where Eric Bischoff attempted an interview Page at a golf course. Page refused comment, but scenes aired to Page making Diamond Doll carry around his bags as he had fun playing golf with Max Muscle. Bischoff did speak with Diamond Doll, who said her name is Kimberly. But Paige likes her to remain anonymous. And no, uh-huh. this isn't on YouTube. Sadly. Then we get a promo airing with Hogan, Savage, and Jimmy Hart. Hogan took some shots at Vince McMahon and said the time is standing still for Hulkamania. I guess 
Wayne Wayne gets at the sh- who the shots were, but obviously Hogan never said any offense by name or anything. Of course, yeah. Harlem Heat didn't want a squash match, and then we get a segment where Randy Savage talking with his father. Now, the one the week before, I put on Twitter that Savage did where he was talking with Ray, with, with Angelo on a pier. Well, here he's talking with him on the beach, where Savage is surrounded by women in bikinis. Savage said he was so eager to wrestle Flair and Vader, he swam to the Bayfront Center. He put his sunglasses on his father, then jumped in the water, followed by dozens of beachgoers. He kept on his hat and full outfit. Fantastic. <laughs> I wish we had that online. Shame. Staying defeated Paul Orndorff at the Advanced U.S. Title Tournament. In the end, Sting bat dropped out of Orndorff's pile driver finisher and locked on the Scorpion Deathlock. I remember that being a pretty good match. So there you go. There's Saturday night. Did a 1.8 rating. Live main event before the preview did a 1.4 rating. Mm-hmm. Now, here's the situation with Gordon Soley. <clears throat> About a week or so before the show, Soley was informed by David Crockett that he was being inducted into Hall of Fame. Soley's only problem was with John Studd, not Angela Poffo, choice of which was roundly criticized because Poffo wasn't even a man of most of his career. Soley was not, his, his, cho- his deal wasn't with Studd as being star worthy of the honor or being that he was best known for WWF, but he didn't want to MC an induction of Stud in his hometown so soon after the wide world of sports piece talking about the links of his longtime steroid use to the health problems that may have contributed to his early death. Apparently, Soli would have been fine about doing it if not for that piece, or if it had been a year later. Soli at one point actually quit the company or was fired, basically a little of both, before, according to the story, Gary Justin worked as an intermediary, which led to Soli himself being inducted, and him agreeing to do the ceremony and staying with the company. Because what do you think about Gordon, how Gordon reacted to the whole stud thing? You mean besides the fact that he doesn't actually stay with the company? Well, that too. I get it to a point, I guess. Um, he was a weird inclusion, regardless. Um... Do I think it should matter, especially with how little impact the Wide World of Sports piece had? Eh, not really, but I, I get where he's coming from. Yeah. I get, I'm i guessing you're kind of in the same place. I mean, <clears throat> Corn is one of those guys. He's old school about protecting the business and this, that, and the other. And to have that in, at this point in time and kind of high-profile piece... <sighs> Yeah, I mean, I understand where Gordon's coming from, but I don't know. <clears throat> you know, what happens, what happened, they came to a compromise, and everybody, you know, it all worked out in the end, I guess. And then he quit so. anyway. So, And then he quit anyway, yeah. All right, uh, what we do have a clip of, though, we don't have a Saturday night, but we have Worldwide. This is one of my favorite angles of this era on WCW television. So there had been a mass team that had worked some matches called Dos Amigos. Well, they're they're about to have a match on Worldwide against Ric Flair and Vader, but we have an interesting twist. So let's go to the clip, shall we? to the ring by the enforcer Arn Anderson from the Rocky Mountains, weighing 450 pounds. Vader! Why does Katana introduce him? 
like that. All right, Arn Anderson with them, and now the opponents. Very mysterious day. gentlemen, their opponents from Santiago de Compostela, Spain, weighing 510 pounds, Los Dos Amigos. Adios, amigos. When Vader and Flair get done with you two. Balls. Oh, I slapped. Uh, what I'm going to say about this is, you know, Dos Amigos had the full body suits, red and green body suits, red and green masks. You look at these guys. Oh, they're doing and, an excellent job camouflaging who they are. An excellent job of camouflaging who they are. Now, they're taller than Los, Los Amigos usually are, but still, considering who's under the hoods and how they look, oh, absolutely. Yes. All right. Well, they have him cornered here. And Does the word cucaracha mean anything? It's Renegade! Look out, on! Renegade! He's going to take him out by himself! With the Dos Amigos and Arrogant Flair! And they double close line! And there's Jimmy Hart! Wait a minute, this smells funny to me! That's Hogan! That's Hogan! It's Hulk Hogan! That's got to be Savage! That's got to be Savage over there! Something, 
Mego! Yo, Mego! Yo, Dos Amigo! Did you see the three little chihuahuas? They run from us, Amigo, huh? I feed them, I feed them, but uh, they didn't do you want to Colombia, Mexico? I don't know. Well, you know, I guess we might have saved Baba Louie so long, you know. You know something, Macho Man. I can't believe, brother, how stupid Ric Flair is, man. I can't believe how stupid Vader is. Every single Hulkamaniac in this place knew who we, who we were. They kept their mouths shut. And we just caught Vader, brother. You don't mess with the Hulkamaniacs, Macho. And this Sunday, brother, now that we got these three little chihuahuas on the wrong amigo, I can't wait till this Sunday till we get their hands on them with the renegade in the corner. What are they going to do, Macho Man? They're going to do absolutely nothing. has been broken, yeah, now it's time to party at Slamboree this Sunday. What are you going to do this Sunday, Baylor Flair, when the Renegade, Macho Man, and Hulk Hogan do the Mexican hat dance on you? Ooh, yeah! Fans, it's going to be exciting. Watch yourself now. We are all getting ready. Tony's running mad now. That was a creative angle for this era of WCW. Yes. And it and was a cool it surprise up. for the Orlando attendees, too. Oh, God, They yeah. clearly had no idea that they were going to get a... Uh, Considered the game. Was, sorry. Somehow a gaming historian uh, started auto-playing. But anyway. And, 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 you know, I mean, it's... And Hogan and Savage did a great job of hiding it, everything. Yes. I mean... And this is well. This is also the era of Hogan not being as big as he was, mm, yeah. as far as massive. So he just looked like a tall guy. Yeah. In the bodysuit. Renegade running in and clotheslining them both was kind of unnecessary, though. Well, yeah, <laughs> but you know, it's Hogan. So what are you going to do? But uh, yeah, I always love that moment. It's good stuff. Fun stuff. All right, uh, a few things to close out. Torch. Ming's nephew, a former pro, pro football player at six foot three, two sixty, is going through WCW's training camp. I'm not sure who this is. No, especially since uh, his kids would be a good bit younger than that too. Yeah. William the Refrigerator Perry was in the office on May 22nd. It was described as a favor arranged through TBS Sports and not be taken as any kind of a sign that he would be coming in. He'd have to go through the training school program before they'd use him, and the belief is he has no idea how hard that would be. Oh, I'm sure he doesn't. And he doesn't do any wrestling anyway, well, so there you go. we continue to close, though, with Torch. And on the May, yes, uh, from the Torch on the hotline on May 23rd, WCB trainer Terry Taylor blistered Perry by saying if he chose wrestling, he would have to work harder than he did in football, and he himself promised to work Perry hard and not give him preferential treatment. Oh, Terry Taylor said that, huh? <laughs> yeah, yes, he did. Yeah, he has a, such a sterling <laughs> record with the uh, black trainees at the WCW power plant. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Uh, well, <laughs> who was it a favor to, though? I have no idea. That's weird. 
It is weird. I have no idea. All right, we got a rare mid-90s international all-together section here. As uh, Japan's not does have a whole hell of a lot going on, and neither does Mexico. So uh, we'll put it all in one big old section here. As uh, we start with All Japan Pro Wrestling, they open their new tour with new angle and new pushes. Shoshikuchi switched from Mitsuharu Masawa's side to Toshiko Kawada's side after losing a singles match to Kawada on May 20th at Cork and Hall. After the match, Kikuchi asked to join Kawada's team as the third member of the trio with Akira Tawe. And then the next day, uh, Tawe, Kawada, and Kikuchi beat Misawa, Kobashi, and Satoru Sako when Kikuchi pinned the Sako. In addition, the Patriot and Rob Van Dam were given pushes. On May 20th, the Patriot team with Johnny A scored a pinfall on Kobashi, teaming with Timon Honda, who returned to being out of action for several months due to facial reconstruction surgery, to immediately make him a serious star in the company. Van Dam, who began a junior heavyweight title shot against Dan Crawford on June 9th, teamed with Johnny Ace on May 21st to beat Crawford and Furnace. Van Dam turned down a major movie role to play an 18-year-old dreaming of winning the Ultimate Fight-style tournament in a Keith Strandberg movie called Super Fights because it coincided with this tour that he had already made a commitment to and he knew he was to be, this would be his first big break in wrestling. Biggs, you ever heard of that film? The name sounds familiar. Is that the one with Shamrock in it? I'm looking. Super Fights, anyway. 1995. It's turned around quickly. Keith Strandberg. Um, do we, can we do we see who the lead is here? Um, okay, Jack is the lead, and he is played by Brandon Gaines, who does not have an IMDb photo. Um, anyone recognizable in here at all? Oh, we've got uh, Keith Hackney. As Enforcer, RVD is in it as Mercenary. Oh, how about that? Yeah, <clears throat> that's about it. All right, so May 20th at Corkin. We have Mighty in a way over Masao in a way. <clears throat> I'm sure that was a fun match to announce. Yes. Rush Kimura and uh, Mitsumoto over Ruka Aiken and Masafuchi. Abdul Butch and Kamala 2 over Chayan Baba and Ryukaku Zamita. Akira Tawe, Takao Mori, Yoshinara over Dan Crawford, Doug Furness, and Mike Anthony, Mike Lazansky. Johnny Ace and the Patriot over Kendall Kabashi, Timon Honda, Kawada over Kikuchi, and Stan Hansen, Bobby Duncan Jr., and Rob Van Dam over Miss Hamasawa, Junakayama, Satoru Sako. Now, the May 21st show, I forgot to put the results in the notes, but here they are. Miss Hainaway over Monokea Mossman, Mike Anthony over Kataro Shiga, Abdul Butcher Kamala 2 over Mighty Inoue, Yoshinara Jam Baba, Miss One Mode, and Rush Kimura over Haruka Egan, Masafuchi, and Roy Kakuzumita. Shining Ace and Rob Van Dam over the Can Ams. The Patriot over Takao Mori. Bobby Duckham Jr., Stan Hansen over Junakayama Timon Honda. And Hodium and Army, Akira Tawe, Toshiko Kawada, and Shoshikuchi over Super Generation Armies. Kanakabashi, Mitsuru Masawa, and Satoru Sako. You know, knowing the way the politics were still at this time. I'm curious how Mike Lazansky got into all Japan after having already worked wing. <clears throat> Who knows? I guess he, somebody did him a solid. Because we're deep in the era of, oh, if you have worked for one of those uh, disgraceful indies, you cannot work for all Japan or New Japan era. Which yeah. Which for years, it's really... And it was, well, New Japan was a little different, but still, like... Uh, it's not something you'd expect from all Japan, especially. You know, then there's the whole, you know, New Japan thing with 
Samoa Joe not being able to get to New Japan despite being an L.A. Dojo guy because he had the stench of Zero One, mm-hmm. as it was called. So, interesting that he's here. Uh, who's the main foreign booker? Dory? Uh, no. Not this one time. Who would it be here? Hanson? Uh, Hanson. Okay. Yeah, you don't. I wouldn't know what it, what connection he would have to Hanson or Ace. Like, I'm sure something happened, but interesting to see him here either way. And yes, uh, Kikuchi in the Holy Demon Army. <clears throat> yeah, Bobby Logan Jr., who was also in the thumbs up side and headline tag match with Stan Hanson as his partner. That's good. Jumbo Sharuda were at the five, May 23rd show, and Iwate forming a latest tag team with Giant Baba and Abdul the Butcher in a comedy match, beating Haruka Egan, Rikaku Zamita, and Masafuchi. Is now attending college at Sakuban University with plans on becoming a professor after graduation. Which he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. New Japan Pro Wrestling. New Japan announced the Great Muna vs. Paul Orndorff match was not a title match. Even though it was announced in the States and in the ring as being a title match. Even though they're the same individual in Japan, Great Muta and Keiji Muto are different personalities. It is Muto, not Muta, who was at a GP title, which is why in Japan... If you went to the ring as Muta, it couldn't have been a title match. New Japan announced that Muto's first title defense would be the match on June 14th against Hiroshi Tenzan. Didn't he use both in the 92-93 title reign, or were those all his moves? Yes, yes. Okay, well, he did use both, okay. Yes. This is them changing shit because that match. Yeah, because it's a I'm guessing. Yeah. Which is... <sighs> I would think that would look better for your champion to be defending it, defend the title on a WCR pay-per-view against a guy who, you know, was a fairly big name in wrestling and had, you know, toured Japan four New years Japan. earlier. Yeah. So, weird, but I'm guessing the quality of the match was maybe the reason why, because it sucked. So, I don't know. According to a source in Japan, any Nick Gate figure for the North Korea show, as far as New Japan is concerned, shouldn't be listed. It was like a sponsor show that the government made a deal with Antonio Inoki, who brought in New Japan and and both volunteered their services to the government for publicity for Inoki, but the ticket money went to the government, i.e. the local promoter, as opposed to the organization, and New Japan was in charge of paying the talent. Huh. Don't trust them. Yes, don't trust the wrestling promotion with their attendance claims. Well, no, he's talking about the gate here because it was a soldier. Gate, all, well, all of that. Well, not gate. Uh, here, specifically, he's saying how, as far as it would have impacted New Japan. Yeah, but still. Yeah. All right, we got indie results. Start with FMW at Nakoko Warfare Hall on May twenty second, front of thirteen sixty. We have Makayato over Ultra Taro. Then we have a handicap match: Combat Toyota over Korea Nakayama and Yukari Shikura. Choden Senshi Battle Ranger over Damiyase Seiseis. Bad Boy Hito and Hideki Osaka over Tetsuya Kuroda and Kastoshi Niyama. Megumi Kudo and Miyasato over Shar Shishuya and Bad Nurse Nakamura. Mr. Pogo and Horace Boulder over Mr. Danger, Mitsuru Matsunaga and Wing Kanamura. And in the Gladiator, Mike Awesome, Hitsukatsu Oi and Riki Fuji over Hayabusa, Koji Nakagawa, and Masato Tanaka in your main event. Was that a street fight? No, it's just a straight match. Huh. No steps. Now we have the debut on this show of Specialist Global Pro Wrestling. Where did you find this? Don't worry where I find stuff. May 21st at the Toyota Sports Center event plaza in front of 621 fans. There's only one match listed for this show. It's a seven-man Royal Rumble won by, naturally, 
Ultraman Robin, who uh, went over such luminaries as Apollo Shigawara, Hikaru Kawabata, Riki Oito, The Fly, Torinari Fujita, and Yuichi Fukaya. Don't you love a Japanese indie match from this era, especially a battle royal where you can only recognize two names? Well, I can recognize more than that. <sighs> Which one? Well, obviously... Ultraman Robin. That's what Apollo I'm saying. Shigawara. Robin and Shigawara are Ka- the obvious ones. Kawabata's Kishin Kawabata. Oh, okay. I didn't uh, realize that's Kishin Kawabata. Tony uh, Fujita was a guy who worked indie scum for a while. Ricky Oida was somebody who I can't remember what his other name was. The Fly and Fukaya, I don't know. Top of my head. But there you go. That's it. Not the biggest and, drawing indie scum show of the week. West Japan Pro Wrestling making their debut on Between the Sheets. They are in a show at Kumoto City Gym on May 20 in front of 2670. We have Diablo and Poisonous Gas Mask going to a 20-minute draw with Crusher Takahashi and Hopper King. Yes! Then we have uh, Suzinji Kazushiro over Mizunobu Kikazawa, Kikataro. Yes. Billy Two Eagles of Hiroshi Atanaka by disqualification. In 1995. <laughs> Hode Min over Kenichi Kawasaki. Koichi Okamura over Fumi Akiyama. Koji Katao over Dane Rush. And our main event, Hiroshi Shimada, Kenichiro Yukimura, and Ryuma Go over Black Hole, Masaru Toei, and Mitsutero Takuda. Sure. And uh, Kimura is exactly one month removed from uh, Valley Tudo Japan 95. Yes. Where he, uh, I guess, most famously lost to Todd Hayes in the first round. And then who did he? He fought someone in the alternate match. And then who did he lose to? Hickson? Oh, yeah. It's Wayne Emmons. He submitted... And then, yeah, he fights Hickson and gets submitted. Yes. Yes, one of my favorite parts, though, of Choke, the documentary about that, is when, you know, Todd Hayes was a kickboxer, you know, from, what was it, Oklahoma? Mm -hmm. You know, who was mainly doing kickboxing to make money for his Olympic bobsled hopes, which came to pass. He did go to the Olympics as a bobsledder. I forget if he medaled. So... You know, it's 1995 MMA. You're not really expecting, you know, not that Koichiro Kimura's a world beater, but he's still a trained catch wrestler who has experience in judo. You know, you would expect him to just get a takedown and dominate. No, and especially if you see the training clips that's in the documentary. Todd Hayes, like, for a guy who just does these fights here... Him and his coach, they had a real, relatively, especially for 1995, well-rounded MMA game. Sprawls out the takedown, gets him in a guillotine choke, gets a submission in less than three minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, and then the best part is after they show Kimura walk into the locker room throwing his gloves off, yelling, at at least as translated, "Uh, he wasn't just a puncher and a kicker. (laughs) Yeah. Which I'm guessing he did not phrase it that way in Japanese. It, some of the translations and the subtitles in that movie are a little weird. All right, let's go to PWFG. They ran Corkin on May 19th, Bix. I thought you weren't wanting me to do it after you didn't leave the opening at the beginning of the show. May 19th. May 19th. May 19th, in front of 1,200 fans. Subo Genjin over Monkey Magic. Michiko Omakai over Thundercrack by disqualification. <laughs> 
Uh, <laughs> more on that once we get through the results. Takeshi Ono over Nahiru Shikawa. Takamichinoku over Minoru Tanaka. Kasumi Yasuda and Daisuke Akeda over Yuki Shikawa and Shinichi Funaki. And then our main event, Riki Choshu and Yoshika Fujiwara over ITH Guns, Shiro Koshinaka and Nakato Saido. Why not? <laughs> Thundercrack, Bix. Uh, yeah, where do we start? Working Michiko Omakai. Yeah. Okay, so if only, Mich- for- if only Michiko Omakai and Thundercrack traded spots years later. Oh, crap. <laughs> Chris. <laughs> well, I mean, she was she was well known for her uh, fetching looks among the uh, Western. And she Yoshi did, and she did, fu- and she did fuel full nude pictures. So well, there is a that lot of too. a lot of the women of that era did the photo books and stuff. Yes, but well, I mean, well, yeah, but she did full nude. Well, so, she wasn't the only yeah. one, but no, she was not the only one, but still, yes. Yeah, so she breaks in through war and works there at LLPW, but eventually is one of the women, you know, with some experience that RCN builds around, and she becomes something of a star there. And as we've talked about before, if she came along later, holy shit, would she go to WWE? Yes, but Cause she you're very late here. And that, oh, well, yes, Thundercrack. Um, <laughs> do we know how they met at all? I don't know. Thundercrack, who knows what her name, real name is, was Fujiwara's German girlfriend, <laughs> who he made an adult film with. Excuse me, at least one, because <laughs> we know there's more than one Fujiwara porn, <laughs> but we don't know if all of them are with her. Well, he was known for his stiff work. Sure. Uh... Would you like a plot summary as someone who actually has seen this? <laughs> sure, why not? It, it starts as like they are auditioning various Japanese men to participate in uh, in the adult festivities with her. And she... <laughs> this sounds so terrible and racist now, and it is, but this is what's in the movie. Um, movie. This is what's in the video. She has the guys take their underwear off and is sizing them up and says something to the effect of, and the second part of this is definitely how she said it. She says something like, is that big for Japan? I don't know. I'm Western. (laughs) She absolutely says, I'm Western. If Fujiwara shows her what a real man is. <laughs> That's basically what, how it happens, that he is not sat- <laughs> it appears he, I, look, I don't speak Japanese, but he is not uh, satisfied with how the uh, the mark from the crowd is, is satisfying one thundercrack. <laughs> so he uh, comes out, I think he, he may have allegedly been a director, but he, so, he, so it's Fujiwara wearing ca- a camouflage cap, painter's cap, camouflage t-shirt and camouflage like sweats <laughs> to interrupt and and then he and uh, thundercrack go to town <laughs> oh my god 
Oh god! What if I look it up, should we see? Okay, it, the Thunder Ecstasy is online. There's no way it is, right? <laughs> oh man, it's classic. A, what a I I don't I don't understand why this happened. I <laughs> it's Fujiwara, you know. Yeah, I, I, yeah. There's something I could say, but I'm not gonna. Because it's descriptive of his technique uh, in part of the movie, but I'm not gonna. Let's just say, let's just say, his movements are very vigorous and performative. Like I said, he works stiff. He was known for that. So snug too. Yes, tight. Okay, that's enough. This was this was a running joke on the Defy Driver message board years and years and years ago. So. Well, because also we had no idea it existed until uh, it showed up on Japan Wrestling Shop. Yes. What? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Katsumi said I... it be funny. It was not. <laughs> well, let's go to rings. There's your 3,482 fans at Takashima on May 20th for Akira Maeda over Nikolai Zuev on top. <clears throat> we have... Um, Oh, what's his fucking name? I didn't put his first name in here. Yamoto. Kenichi Yamoto. Yes. Mr. Show. Still have action from injuries suffered in the match with Hickson Gracie. Kenichi was at a wedding this past week. It still has a patch over his eye from the Valley Tudo match. That's the downside of making a rep in that type of environment that he's missed two cards. Yamoto is supposed to return on June 17th and begin the main event at Tokyo Rocket Coliseum against Volkan on a Japan versus Russia show with mainly new Russians debuting. Don Nakaya Nielsen, a retired kit boss who had legendary mixed match against Maeda in 86, will debut for rings on that show against Masuya Nagai. Hmm. Alright, results of the May 20th show. Nobuhiro Shuramaki went to a Tyler and draw with Sakata. Sotir Gochev over Shishka Saka. Herman Renting over Masuki Naruse. Masuya Nagai over Andre Kopilov. Willie Williams over Zazaka Rome. And Akira Maeda over Nikolai Zuev. Since he's Dutch, wouldn't it be Airman Renting? Airman Renting, yes. Something like that. Yeah. But still Herman to me, so there you go. Sure, sure. I, I like how this ring show with Maeda allegedly drew less than a thousand people more than the West Japan show. <laughs> well, you know who the big stars are, you know? Yeah, Obviously. Yeah. I, okay, so wait, so 3482... Yeah, 812 fans, allegedly, was the difference between those two shows. <clears throat> yeah. I'm, imagine if West Japan had Biofranken by this point, how much they would have drawn. Imagine they would have had Thundercrack. Um, <laughs> All Japan women. Akita Professional Gym on May 20th on 1845. We have Noboy Endo over Yoshika Tamura. Oh, Masai Watanabe over Yumi Fukawa, Vix. Well, one and two ain't bad. <laughs> Kimiko Mikawa over Yukashina. Andre Kong and Takako Inoue over Yumiko Hota and Rei Tamada. Mariko Yoshida over Tomoko Watanabe. And LCO, Eskomina Mimishimoto over Manami Toyota and Karo Ito. And then JWP, they had a show in Kyoto on May 20th. We have Hiromi Shugo and Hiromi Yagi over Reiko Mano and Sumiya Toyama. Devil Masami over Hikari Fukuoka. And then JWP tag team match, Kiri Suzuki and Dynamite Kansai retained over Kendo Okutsu and Mayomi Ozaki. You know, one thing you do see in this era, it really does become clear just how much female talent was out there in Japan at the time that isn't necessarily being well utilized. 
because look at all the names we've had here that end up being like top star great workers in Arsian that aren't being showcased at this time. You know, it's only three years later. You know, Yoshida, Omukai, uh, Yagi, Fukawa. Yeah. You know, and they end up becoming key parts of that roster. So shows how low the rosters were, which, eh, that would change. Well, when you don't have, when you don't have many promotions, you can, that happens. So, all right, let's go to Canada. Canadian Rocky Mountain Wrestling. They had a show at the Victoria Community Club on May 19th in Calgary. Ah. We have Flip Lee over Jason Helton. Fernando Valentino over Don McCulloch. The Pitbull Kid over Katana. Not Katana Chance. Chris Jericho and Lance Storm went to a double count out. And Johnny Smith over Black Bart. Not Probably the Black not Bart, but no. a, a Black Bart. Yes. Now, despite not being Katana Chance, I believe this Katana's gimmick was also being White Girl Wasted. <laughs> there you go. And uh, this, I think this is one of Jericho's last matches in this promotion, too. So uh, there's that. That sounds about right. Yes. Uh, let's go to Mexico. Triple R. They uh, had a show at Arena Nezo, May 19th. Jerry Estrada retained the Mexican National Heavyweight title. Well, he defended against Latin Lover, no result. And La Parca, Mascara Sagrada, Octagon, and Rey Mysterio Jr. went up against Fuzzagarada, the Killer Pentagon, and Psychosis in the main event. Wow, that's Thanks. most of a good match. <clears throat> yeah. <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. Yes, plus Keeler. Yeah, the Keeler. May 19th in CMLL. They had a show at Rina Coliseo. Yeah, an elimination tag tournament. With all the top technicals because all the top Rudos. This is a Tornado Cybernetica. No, 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 no. Uh, no. This is the first annual Grand Alternativa. <clears throat> oh, you're right. You're right. Sorry. Uh, Apollo Dante's debut on the Rudos side was left with Atlantis. Ray Lisco Jr. hit a Garza. Dante's pinned Atlantis. It was disqualified for fouling Rayo, leaving Rayo and Garza as the final survivors. Rayo and Dante should start heating up as a top match in a re- as a regular starting this week. Oh, no, it is Cybernetico. It is Cybernetico. Sorry, you were right. Um, That's what I thought I was right. Because well, yes. I'm thinking 95 and I'm seeing Garza. I mean, Because that's also the first Grand Alternative is around this time, isn't it? It's said 95, but yeah. All right, so uh, Nestor in Mexico, not Casea. Yeah. All right, so we have our opener, Damiacito Guerrero. Virus and Felinito over Agalita Solitaria and Ciclontito Ramirez. Olipico and Chureno over America and Lynx. Damiano Guerrero, Guerrero de Futuro and Guerrero Maya over Cadaver de Ultra Tumba, Especial Junior and Chaos by disqualification. And then the Torneo Cibernetico. We have Atlantis, Tatapana Junior, at the Garza La Sombra, the original. Well, not Donas and Gerade. Mano Negra, Mascara Magica, and Rayo. Over Apollo Nantes, Arcana de la Muerte, El Brazo, El Dandi, Emilio Chavez Jr., Felino, and Sangre Chicana. And then the Tuesday show on the 23rd, we have Baby Richard and Supremo Dos of Andre Plata and El Mestizo. Chicago Express, Escudero Rojo, and Reyes Vellos over Américo Roca, Sicon Ramirez, and Humberto Garza Jr. Io de Gladiador, Gramacos Jr., and Mochocota over Blue Demon Jr., Io de Salutario, and Rico Mendoza. Tatabanda Jr., Mano Negro, and Satanico over Brazo de Oro, Brazo de Plata, and Silver King. And then Ultimo Dragon retained the NWA middleweight title over Bestia Savaje in your main event. Yeah, and real quick, uh, okay, I had the timing even wronger than I realized on Grand Alternativa in one way, because 
This is actually the second, although the first was in December. The one that happens around this time already happened. It was April 7th, and that's won by Silver King and Shulker. So wait, when's the one that Garza wins? Okay, that was the one that happened in December. That's why I got confused. But yeah, uh, anyway. Uh, how early is this as far as, like, how common were Cyberneticos at, at this time? This is the early days of that. Okay. So... So whose idea was it? Uh, Juan Herrera or someone like that? <laughs> you know, I don't know who who, who is the uh, founder of the Cybernetico. Uh, who knows? So yeah, yeah, you would think it would be credited to someone. Well, and why is it called a Torneo Cybernetico anyway? It'll come out eventually. So yes, I'm sure. I'm sure Jose Fernandez or Rob Bahari or maybe Robert O'Connor. Or... One of those people Somebody in there, tell us when they hear this in six to eight months. <laughs> All right. Well, that is it for the first half. The show is halftime. So after some great 1995 commercials, we'll pivot to halftime. Well, we'll talk about our Patreon show. We'll uh, hit the plugs and then we'll come back to the U.S. independent scene where we have uh, some Northeast Indies to talk about. Eddie Guerrero and Malenko tear it up in the house shows for ECW. Some disappointments in Smoky Mountain Wrestling as far as gates and all kinds of stuff. All that more after the break. We'd like to remind you that whenever you make it a blockbuster night, you never need a babysitter. The parking is always free. The atmosphere is as casual as the dress code. And you always get the best seat in the house. With over 9,000 Blockbuster videos to choose from, we'd like you to remember that when it comes to a great night with the family, there's no place like home. There's no place like home. Make it a Blockbuster night. I'm a 35-year-old mother who loves the kids' cereal. Do you ever outgrow Kellogg's Frosted Flakes? My kids keep wondering why the box runs out so fast. I tell them the truth. Raccoons. Frosted Flakes have the taste adults have grown to love. They're great! Now for sale on video. The world's richest kid is out to save his family from the world's greediest villain. But he'll need a little help from his friends. Macaulay Culkin. Richie Rich. Rated PG. Now for sale on video. Wednesday, the Connors turn into the castaways on Gilligan's Island. It's a hilarious salute to one of our favorite TV shows. You've never seen a Roseanne season finale like this. I'm tired of everybody thinking you're prettier than me. Deal with it, Dorothy. Followed by Ellen, Wednesday. Going back to school is a big deal. Computers. I can't do computers. You'll seem fine. <laughs> I am the oldest student here. Not really. For the ultimate in pH balance protection, use the one that'll keep you drier than any other kind out there. Secret Ultra Dry. You are going to be a great student. Yeah. Your registration, ma'am. <laughs> Don't laugh. Strong enough for a man, pH balanced for a woman. The Harveys have a new home. It's not so bad. There's Stephen King. There's a girl on my bed. Yes! But before they can call it their own... Remember, ghosts can't hurt you. Yes, they can, bone bag! They have to do a little house cleaning. Universal Pictures and Amblin Entertainment present... Casper! No, wall, human! Casper. <sighs> Sorry. Rated PG. Haunting season begins Friday at theaters everywhere. Normally, little Tommy Johnson wouldn't stand a chance against NBA star Grant Hill. 
but today he's drinking Sprite. You're in my world now, Hill. Okay, so maybe Sprite won't make you a better athlete. But just to be sure, now we'll pit Tommy against sumo wrestler Katashi. Good luck, kid. Introducing the new no-fee Ford Citibank card. With every purchase, you get an amazing 5% Ford rebate that grows toward the purchase or red carpet lease of a new Ford or Lincoln Mercury, like an Explorer, a Continental, or even a Mustang, which means you can save big and really knock down your monthly car payment, all with the superior services of Citibank. Call 1-800-374-7777 for the new no-fee Ford Citibank card. Hi, I'm Frank Gifford. You know, it's great to be able to spend time with your kids, but a lot of kids aren't so lucky. So the next time you take your children to a ball game, ask them if they know someone who would like to come along. Be a sport. Put children first. Friday, TGIF's got its head in the clouds first. I'm chattering a plane. How come? Oh, I'm banned from all commercial airlines. When their pilot fails, Steve and Carl start to flip on family buddies. Then Sean's stormy views on sex are reviewed. That's disgusting. He's my best friend. Boy meets world, and Frank's a little cloudy about his husbandly duties. Frank, you're the man. Now act like a man. Do what I tell you to do. Step by step. Plus, there's no silver lining to this breakup. Sounds like she took it badly. No, you think? Coop's on a TGIF. It's got its head in the clouds Friday. All right, we're back. I hope you enjoyed those great 1995 commercials as we pivot to the halftime segment of the show where we'll begin talking about our Patreon, patreon.com slash between the sheets, where we have already started at this point in time that we're talking here. We recorded half of the Patreon show that will be coming out at the end of the month as we go to part two of Titan Gate. And it's definitely going to be one of two parts. Now, we know that already. So this is part two of Titan Gate, a look at the scandals in Titan Sports of 1992. And this show, like I said, we're only halfway through, but it's it's already taken a different slant from the first show, as this show will be focusing more at the beginning. Like I said, we're only doing half of it. More on the steroid part. Well, that's about and, to change, though, in the part we're going to record next. It's about to change. It's about to change, but it's it's a heavy steroid part in the first section. So that's what I'm saying. This isn't just about ring boys and sex and stuff like that. This is about drugs and all the other stuff that's going on too. So it is a well-rounded show as we look at everything that's going on in the World Wrestling Federation in 1992, and. uh Boy, I mean, it's just, it's crazy. Crazy the amount of um, things that are being said by people who should know better, like Steve Planamena. <laughs> and uh, even Vince McMahon and stuff like that. And, well, even Dave Meltzer having a and Dave. surprisingly bad grasp on how testosterone levels work with regards to failing drug tests. Yes, and definitely remember the name Dr. Mauro Di Pasquale. Because no, his name Dr. Mauro Di Pasquale. That's what I said, said Dr. Mauro De- No, you said DeMauro. No, I did not. I said Dr. Mauro. Okay. Again, I know what I'm saying because the words are coming out of my mouth. <laughs> Do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? So I know what I'm saying. But anyway, um, so yeah, so this show is going to be like, like the other ones. Like I said, we got more to come as we get into the Vincent Mann section of the, uh, the sexual uh, 
issues in the company at the time. So uh, $5 a month gets you access to that Patreon. And we're sitting pretty good right now at, what, 520-something? Yeah, uh, I think right now, the yeah, I think it was 528 when I just looked. Yeah, so we're sitting good. Uh, we're on the list of uh, of, of wrestling P- Patreon podcast that's uh, that's doing very well. We want to get higher on that list, and to do that, we need you to continue your support and to tell friends. Say, listen, this is what you're missing. If you want to hear some of the best audio on wrestling history, then you need to go to Patreon.com/slash Between the Sheets. And you need to put $5 a month down and listen to what we have to offer as we're nearing six full years of Patreon audio. It's the best deal in the business. $5 a month at patreon.com slash between the sheets. And we're going to have a lot more to come. Yes. So you definitely want to get in and keep and keep it going at the $5 a month or annual fee, Bix, is? Uh, $50.40 because it's 16% off. There you go. So you yes. can go annual as well. And we should mention, too, because we talked about it a little bit on what we recorded so far, the new Patreon show that's coming out, you know, before the end of the month. But we should also mention, because it is kind of a compliment to this, and there's a little overlap, and the stuff we've gotten since then will probably end up being in future parts of the current series. If you want to hear more about the uh, origins of one Vince Russo and how it relates to all this, we have a show about that that we did very early on. Yes. Episode number six of the Patreon shows, Vince Russo Origins. Yeah, we're at we're show 68. It shows how far long ago that was. So, uh, yeah, definitely get in on the Patreon and tell everybody that you know about it. But now, a dollar a month gets you access to the Discord and thanks to this segment, which we're doing in just a minute. Now, $25 allows you to pick a show for the week if you want. Now, if you want to do such a thing, make sure you have two show ideas in mind because maybe somebody have picked your week already on the calendar or it's a week that we may have already done in some form or fashion so definitely have two in mind and uh if you have any questions about that get with one of us and let us know and we'll see if everything works out and um yeah i mean there's a we want to make this easy for you to uh, have your show done and remember 30-day rules in effect 10-year rules in effect um wednesday to tuesday of the year that our show is taking place in whether it's this year or next year and uh, follow the protocol on the Patreon website, and then it shouldn't be a problem. We should get your show taken care of. Patreon.com slash Tweeny Sheets. $50 allows you to sit in for a segment of that show if you choose, and 100 for the whole show if you choose. And, um, yeah, you do that, and you should be good to go. All right, so who we have this week is our new and or returning patrons. All right, we'd like to thank Brian Stewart. Thanks, Brian. Corey Parkos. Thanks, Corey. The returning Web Con. Thanks, Web Con. Longtime uh, internet friend of ours, IVP Videos. Oh, yes, IVP Videos, one of the best wrestling DVD websites you can get. Deals, tremendous deals, and they have a vast archive, especially of Japanese wrestling. So uh, go check them out if you want to find some good Japanese wrestling from the last. Uh, 30, 40 years or so. And they have Blu-rays, and do they have Blu-rays, downloads as well? Downloads, yes. But yeah, they uh, they do a lot of great work at yes. IVP Videos. Yes. And so we thank them. 
Last one we have here is, uh, I believe, the also returning Shane Campbell. All right. Yes. Thank you, Shane. And we thank all you new patrons, you old patrons, patrons that have come along the way, patrons from the beginning, all of you. We thank all you for your continued uh, dedication to the Patreon. And don't you want to be part of a Patreon that's growing and not losing subscribers? That's what I think. So (laughs) patreon.com slash between the sheets. And we're further up the list than the last time Brandon did those top wrestling Patreons, too. I think we're, we're at like number 15, I think. Something like that. So let's keep it going. Let's get to the top ten. Yes. Let's get. Let's try to work our way up to the top ten. Well, let's, yeah, let's we, be up, now I know we're not going to be up there with Fightful. And or, I don't or Conrad. Be, uh, yeah, Conrad. I mean, because Sean, Sean does amazing work. He's one of the best at what he does. Conrad has all the big names and has all his stuff going on. We just want to get high enough. We just want to get a. We want to get in there. We want to get in that conversation on the next tier. So. Well, it's Do not just a, a conversation, it's also the money. Well, I mean, I'm not trying to, you know, go out there and try to, you know, uh, <laughs> make it all about that. I mean, yeah, I mean, it's always great to have that, of course, but I just want the status. <laughs> yeah. So that, between, that Between the Sheets podcast is, is right there with uh, all these other podcasts that I have, you know, all, all these great followings. Be out there with Laps fan. Laps fan has a you know a, a, a very solid uh, listenership, and I would love to be you know in, in their stratosphere. So yes, yes. So and they do great work. They, I mean, it's well worth it. So uh, I just want to be up there with them. I want to have that kind of status. Yes. Also, so, when but, Brandon uh, did this yesterday. So wait, yeah, wait a second. I think we already had. He has this as 524. I'm not sure what day he did this because re- it has Wrestling Soup ahead of us with 528. Well, it's, he did it before. So, t- hey, we got extra patrons. So, there you go. So, we can actually see. Are we ahead of Wrestling Soup right now? What do they have? Wrestling Soup is okay. They're still ahead of us. They're at 534 now. Okay. Well, hey, that's fine. I just want to. I just want to move up in the world. So there I you know go. nothing Onward about that podcast. I know nothing about that podcast other than the one that they're the ones that I think uh, made the AR Fox adult film into a bit of a meme. Well, whatever. People, I mean, people like what they like. So there yes, you go. Exactly. All right. So uh, yeah. So patreon.com slash between the sheets. All right. IWTV. IWTV picks. Uh, I'm sure there's a lot going on there, as it is every week. So uh, what you seeing on there? All right. Well, um, did want to mention first, so I don't forget, on the on-demand-only side, there were at least – maybe I'll double-check the specific section, too, to make sure there's more. They added at least two uh, All Japan Women back catalog shows, both from 1991 a March 17th, 91 show that includes uh, Kira Hokuto versus Aja Kong, Bull Nakano and Kyoko Inoue versus Bison Kimura and Mika Takahashi, Minami Toyota versus Suzuka Minami, uh, Takako Inoue versus Norio Tateno, uh, Debbie Malenko and Mariko Yoshida against Mayu Miyazaki and Sakia Hasegawa, and more. And then what is this other one we have here? We have... January 11th, 91. Yeah, some of these aren't even, like, major, like, name shows, so to speak. Which is cool. I like that we're getting a little deeper and digging in the crates with some of this All Japan Women stuff that's going up. Uh, this show includes, oh, Hair versus Hair, Jungle Jack of Aja Kong and Bison Kimura versus 
Bull Nakano and Kyoko Inoue, which I have no recollection of that match and there being a hair match with any of them. Uh, all Pacific title, Akira Hokuto versus Nami Toyota. Uh, six woman tag with Itsuko Mira, Suzuka, Manami, and Toshiya Yamada against Mima Shimona, Norio Tateno, and Yumiko Hota. Uh, Yoshida and Takako as a team. Two kickboxing rules matches and more. So, yeah, more AJ. AJW or excuse me, Zenjo mm-hmm. going up. And, you know, as we said before, like, I don't know if they had any DVD releases. I know there's the stuff that went up that was on classics that was taped to D. Well, excuse me, that people recorded a DVD off the satellite. But I'm pretty sure a lot of this stuff has not been available before and close to this quality. Oh, I'm sure there probably hasn't. So that's been very cool. Um, let me double check here. Is there anything else? Okay, yeah, those are the two new additions as far as All Japan Women now on the live stream front. So as far as stuff that will have already taken place, um, we need to wear, I mean, I mean, uh, we need to, I guess, focus more on what's about the air. No, but it's going to be available on demand. At least. Yeah, you know, we, most we, of the we stuff talked, we talked we, about. Well, we, well, that's what I was about yeah, to say. We talked about last week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was mainly just going to single out, you know, that we have the, uh, there, there is what's probably going to be, at least in terms of attendance, the biggest action wrestling show ever. Uh, this coming Saturday as we recorded this, this past Saturday as the show goes up. There's going to be 93,112 people there. So 60, wait, one less than WrestleMania 3? <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're the guy that's the heavy investigator. I told Dylan, I said, don't tell Bix what I just did. So. Yeah. By the way, <laughs> isn't it interesting that Marcus Mathers is on that show when I don't think he's been booked in the South before and he's got his IWTV title shot briefcase? They could happen. Yeah, in the World Wrestling Federation. Uh, so, yeah, so now as this is out this coming week, we've got Uncharted Territory Episode 3 in Southeast First, which includes, uh, and that's you know, Monday night, the day this comes out, Adam Priest versus John Wayne Murdoch, Jaden Newman versus Shaza McKenzie, Anthony Henry versus Brandon Williams, Kevin Koo versus BK Westbrook, Marcus Mathers in action, hmm, and more. Bojack's on that show, too. Yes, Bojack against Sean Campbell, and, uh, oh, also Billy Starks is going to be in a tag team match on that show, so pretty nice-looking episode of Southeast First Uncharted Territory there and also that is Shaz's last American match before the last leg of her trip uh, in Vegas and then going back to Australia. Well, there you go. Yeah, so there's that. And then, okay, so wait, that is the, sorry, I was making sure I was looking at the, that it threw me off because that's a Monday. So then, right, of course, there's wrestling open as always on Thursday. And then as we get into the weekend, there's a Pro Wrestling Magic show, there is a Freelance Underground show, there's another Sean Henderson Presents show, there is another Prestige show, so I'll check, go to those in a second, since Prestige is probably, I would say, the one with the most names, and probably the one to single out here. Uh, Give me one second as I make sure I get to the right tab. Alright, so, okay, two Prestige shows this coming weekend as this is as this drops. So, N- Roseland 391 includes Miyu Yamashita versus Masha Slamovich, Biff Busick, Jacob Fatu, Mia Yim Maki Ito, uh, Ethan HD, Scotty Too Hottie, sure. Uh, our dear friends, Violence is Forever, 
Uh, okay, someone put it, <laughs> Dylan or whoever put this in the match listing wrong. It says, oh, excuse me, now I see why I read it wrong. There is a tag team in Prestige who holds their tag titles called named C4. I completely forgot. They're defending it against the C4 tag team champions, our dear friends, Violence is Forever. <laughs> that took me a second. Uh, Willow Nightingale, Taya Valkyrie, Jack Evans, Ray Urus, uh, Prestige. <laughs> the way it's listed on the on the IWTV site, the Prestige title match is listed second from the bottom. <laughs> Alex Shelley defending against Filthy Tom Lawler, plus... Uh, Four-Way with Sonico, Drexel, MV Young, and Akira. So that is a very loaded show, and very much like the last show they did that they had the live stream. And then night two, and uh, always remember these are Pacific time zones, so later start on the East Coast. Uh, Alex Shelley Bandito, Jeff Cabre, Orus, Jacob Fatu, Scotty Tuhani. Yeah, eh, family connection, why not? Miyu Yamashita, Maki Ito, Taya Valkyrie, Master Slamovich, uh... Deathmatch between Akira and Drexel. Speedball Mike Bailey versus Sonico. Tom Lawler and Violence is Forever. Team Filthy Reunion taking on MV Young and Midnight Heat. Plus Jack Evans versus Jaden, not Newman. So, very loaded shows there. And also, real quick, the Sean Henderson Presents show, which is Sunday afternoon, as I believe those usually are. Includes a Matt Tremont, Colby Carino, and House of Pain match. Uh, Brandon Kirk versus Ruckus, who's been wrestling more lately. Uh, I think one of the other Sean Henderson present shows coming up has Ruckus versus, uh, Dante Martin, which should be very interesting. And, uh, Tara Calloway in action and more. So lots of stuff has always come up on ITBTV, but for those of you who are into the bigger indie names and the international names and the like, those prestige shows are definitely ones to check out. So if you're not already a subscriber, go to IWTV at independentwrestling.tv, use code BTSPOD, and as long as you stay a paid subscriber, we will get a referral fee from IWTV as taken out of your subscription. So please do that. Yes, please do that. It's well worth it. There's so much there. I mean, you could spend days, weeks, months, all their years even, with all the content they have on there. So, yeah, IWTV. And, like, also, I mean, just indicated from what we talked about here and what we've talked about lately, I think people are underselling the amount of variety in terms of promotions that's been on there lately as far as new stuff and live stuff because much bigger West Coast presence now, you know? Yeah, all yeah. All the Southeast stuff, all the Northeast stuff. Well, they're worldwide. The Midwest, yeah. Australia. And Mexico. Mexico, Japan. Oh, I did watch Tony Deppen versus Virus, by the way. Very, very entertaining match on the most recent uh, Lucha Memes show. I still need to go back and watch the one before that had uh, Matt Mikowski right before he got hurt against uh, Echehero. It should be interesting because even though he's best known for his MMA stuff and what he, you know, brings from that, I mean, Matt Mikowski knows how to do Lucha. I mean, he is. He is someone who broke in through the Wrestle Factory, so he knows how to do all that. So that's a very interesting match on paper that I'm curious to check out when I get a chance. So independentwrestling.tv, code BTSPOD. All right. Today's episode Between the Sheets is sponsored by Private Internet Access, America's number one virtual private network. Even if you use incognito mode, your internet service provider is storing your browsing data and many times even selling it. Assholes. But Private Internet Access can help. 
Private internet access encrypts and reroutes your internet traffic through one of its own servers, hiding your data from your internet service provider or network administrator. And with servers in over 75 countries, you can get unrestricted access to geoblock content from around the world. Private internet access comes with easy-to-use apps and browser extensions for all devices, a rock-solid privacy policy, open-source security, advanced customization settings, and it was just ranked the fastest VPN in the world, VPN in the world by PC Mag. Holy shit. I mean, it's number one. You can't beat that. At privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets. And if you sign up there, you can take advantage of a special deal only for Between the Sheets listeners, where you can start out with a monthly deal of eleven ninety five a month. You can go yearly for $3.33 a month or $39.95 a year or the best deal. 83% off, three years, plus four free months, $1.98 a month, $79 for three years. Unbeatable, covered by the 30-day money-back guarantee at privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets. Millions of satisfied customers, folks. Millions, not thousands, not hundreds, millions. Why? Because that's so much more expensive than virtually every other VPN on the market. And if you get it right now, you can take Private Internet Access's 30-day risk-free challenge. You can try it out for 30 days, see if you like it. And if not, just turn it for a full refund. So, again, privateinternetaccess.com slash between the sheets and try out the best damn VPN on the planet completely risk-free. All right. Next week on Between the Sheets, we'll be rejoined by... Our dear friend Robert O'Connor. No. To, <laughs> to the, as we go back to 1987, where we have a wild week in wrestling history to talk about, we got all sorts of shenanigans going on in Jim Crocker Promotions, which at this point in time includes the UWF and Championship Wrestling from Florida. Oh, dear. Lots of clips in that. So we'll have Dr. Def getting injured on UWF television. We got some wild promos from all the, the favorites, Rick Flair, Dusty Rose, Jim Cornette. Oh, and Madden MTA makes his return to TBS Studios. So we'll have that moment, a touching moment indeed, and, uh, and plenty of other things. Especially uh, interesting to l- listen to Dave uh, talk about the status of JCP at the time as well. You might be surprised. Then we'll have all the news on the territories, including some uh, clips from there as well. As we have uh, Continental we'll talk about there and some Memphis clips. And we'll talk about the dire state of world class and um, other things. Then we have all your international stuff, Mexico, Japan, what have you. And uh, in- including uh, Stampede Wrestling, uh, some Stampede clips as well, folks. A rarity. Yeah. So yes, we'll have Ed Whalen featured on next week's show. Of course, O'Connor's guessing. That's why. But in the World Wrestling Federation, the big story of the week, Axon Jim Duggan and the Iron Sheik arrested. So, yeah, that should be very, very interesting to talk about on next week's show, uh, Between the Sheets. So, should be a hoot. All right, you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Zellner, K-R-I-S-Z-E-L-L-N-E-R. Show proper at B-T Sheets Pod. Bix at David Bix. And uh, did you have anything going on this week, Bix? Uh, not this past week that's up yet, but this week I'll have two articles at Fanbyte. Uh, one is the one I think I already mentioned that I'm going to have kind of looking back, comparing where AEW was three years ago when they launched at the pre first and 
until, you know, next week, only Vegas double or nothing because of the pandemic. And also have a piece that's probably going to end up coming out first because of the timeliness and all that. Uh, looking at the Sasha Banks Naomi thing and comparing it to past instances of uh, public WWE burials like Tom Zank, Warrior, which, well, that one was a little more justified, uh, Austin, Punk, etc. Who knows by by that time by that point in time when that thing comes out, who knows what's done changed by then too. <laughs> Is it weird that you... I kinda wish that only Sasha quit so they could have Naomi do promos where Craig Dia George interviews her about how her partner quit? Quit. Quit. Yes, my partner quit. So well, we'll find out as time goes along there. So there you go. Be on the lookout for that when that comes out. All right, well, that is it for us in this segment. Let's get back to the rest of the show. All right, let's go to the indie scene now. We begin with uh, Killer Kowalski's IWF. We're going to show in Fall River, Massachusetts on May 21st for 200 fans. We have the Star Warrior, not Tim Horner, over Antoine Waugh, Tony Roy, WF Jobber, Ramlin Rose over Mr. Foo, F-O-O, the Eliminators, John Cronus and Perry Saturn over Tim McNeeny and Brian Walsh. Rick Fuller over a Doink the Clown by count out. And the Bushwhackers over Tony Ulysses and Chris Duffy. Cowboy Chris Duffy. You may admit. When was he Cowboy uh, Chris Duffy? Did he work as Cowboy Chris Duffy? Where? I thought he had done that gimmick in the indie scene. Maybe. It's 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 the the... You know, New England WWF job guy with the green, the neon green and black uh, one strap singlet. That's Chris. Duffy. I think I remember him doing doing a cowboy Chris Duffy thing once upon a time. So okay. I could be wrong, but I think I remember that. But anyway, as a Killer Kowalski show with the Eliminators on there right before they go to ECW. Mm-hmm. Now let's go to Universal Superstars of America. <clears throat> They ran a show in Farmingville, New York on May the 20th. Okay, I'm curious if that's a real place or if this is someone thinking Farmingdale. Okay, there is a Farmingville. Okay, there is a Farmingville in Suffolk County on Long Island. So, okay, that is a real place. You're from Long Island. You should know this, Pigs. Suffolk? There are so many places in Suffolk County, because I'm from Nassau County, that, like, me and my sister, like, we would see, like, if we, like, woke up early or couldn't get back to sleep, we'd put on, like, the real estate channel on the local cable system and just try to figure out where there were so many towns in Suffolk that we had never heard of because the name sounded made up. But yeah, I, I, Nassau County, I know much better. Well, there we go. All right. So the results of this is Johnny handsome over Ace darling Gino Caruso. <clears throat> oh, over, over Don rock typhoon over sunny beach. The Warlord of a Great Hammer Valentine by disqualification, and the main event, Bodyguard for Hire over Chris Michaels. Well, let's move on to Extreme Championship Wrestling, where they had three house shows over the weekend, which drew between two and 300 fans, featuring three matches between Eddie Guerrero and Dean Malenko for the television title, all of which were said to be in the three-and-a-half-star range. Eddie won the first match in Hazleton, Pennsylvania on May 19th. Mm. It- Dean won the second match on an afternoon show in Jim Thorpe, Pennsylvania on May 20th. And then the third match went 26-46 of a 30-minute draw in Langhorne, Pennsylvania that evening. So Eddie kept the TV title. 
The third match is said to be not as good as the previous bouts as both guys were tired from doing long matches the night before in that afternoon. Crown wasn't into it as much, but it's still a good match. There's talk they're building to a one-hour marathon match with the most falls determining the winner sometime in the next few months. Which probably would have happened if they hadn't went to WCW. Well, they had already moved into the tag team version of the feud with Taz and Scorpio. Taz got hurt. Then Taz got hurt. I'm trying to remember what was even on the books before they left. Well, you got to remember, Paul was promising them they were going to be the main event of the first ECW pay-per-view, too. Well, no, it was that was going to be Eddie and Benoit, allegedly. <clears throat> oh, yeah, that's right. So, I don't know. Because it feels like he's mostly moved away from it by the time... I mean, they still have, you know, the Steiner six-man, too. Yeah, yeah. But it's not really as much of an ongoing issue by the time they leave. It's there. It's there, though, yes. So they could have easily done it, but they didn't. It was obviously in the plans, so. Yeah. All right, we don't have the Hazleton results, so we do have the double shot on May 20th. Afternoon show in Jeff Thorpe from The Torch. Stevie Richards over Hat Myers. Tommy Dream over Ron Simmons. Tasmaniac over Raven with help from Paulie Dangerously. Shane Douglas over Tuco Scorpio. Dean Malenko over Eddie Guerrero. Captain Sheck went to a no contest with the Sandman when Tommy Dream and Raven interfered, so Sandman retained the title. And public enemy at Doug Flex over Stevie Richards and the Pitbulls when Flex pinned Richards. I'm guessing <clears throat> that Doug Flex was the local promoter of this fine show. I got this fan cam. Yeah, the show said it did not have much fire, but overall it's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I got this fan cam. This show, it is, it's an entertaining show. Yes, and I do have the Hazelton results though. They're on Jason Campbell's site. Well, I just didn't put them in the notes. You just oh, so. I thought you meant you didn't have them at all. Um, no, I didn't put them in the notes. Oh well, you because same... Wade only Wade only used the torches. I mean, Wade only had these results in the torch, and uh, I felt like these were important shows anyway. So it wasn't in the Observer either. Or? I didn't really look. Well, it's All right, real, like, well. It, the only reason I mention it is that we do have the interesting match of Marty Jannetty pinning Raven. Yeah, Raven was doing jobs. Well, I'm curious about that result, though, because Jannetty's not on any of these two shows here on the 20th. Mm, is he on anything else? Okay, he re- well, the last show before this was Enter Sandman six days earlier with Eddie Jannetty. Okay, so he may have worked that one night and didn't didn't work the twentieth, so that's possible. Yeah, and but then anyway. he and then as we get into June, he's still a semi regular. So that I mean that seems it's possible. Yeah. All right, the, the night show in Langhorde at Neshamani High School in front of two and twenty five fans. We have Hack Myers over Don E. Allen, Ron Simmons over Tuco Scorpio, Tasmaniac over Stevie Richards, Dean Malenko thirty minute draw with, with adding. Katniss and Dreamer over Sandman and Raven when Katniss pinned Sandman as Dreamer fought Raven at ringside. In fact, few fans need a pinfall to a place because most are watching Dream- Dreamer and Raven. Shane Douglas over Mikey Whipwreck and public enemy over Pitbulls in a violent, bloody double dog collar match. This event was said to be much better than the afternoon show. And because it's a Langhorn show, at least the person putting up the money for the show as local promoter, if not necessarily the promoter of record, would be Rob Feinstein. Yes. 
Ron Simmons did a heel turn on Scorpio on that show. There was DQ finishing with a best scientific match. Both men won the match restarted. Scorpio's coming through the ropes. Simmons whipped last the ropes to give him a low blow for the pen. And I don't think this airs on TV or goes anywhere because Simmons is done with ECW and Scorpio's about to be a heel anyway. Yes. Cactus and Dreamer both rolled down all the way down 15 rows of bleachers during their uh, match with Raven and Sam on the same show. That sounds about right for them. All right, now let's go to the May 23rd television show. And uh, Cactus Jack opened the show talking about uh, his childhood in a way and uh, how he's about to turn 30 and how he feels about his life. So let's go to that clip, shall we? Sounds it might like bleh, might be like some of his promos later in the year, just a baby face version of thereof. I'm curious. You should have seen my home run swing. At the tender age of six, a right-handed drive that almost every time would send the wiffle ball over the fence that separated my house from the Fries, whose little kid for some reason at age three called my parents by their first name. And every time I rounded those bases after another titanic drive, I'd stop between second and third, run into my house where my mother could joyously jot down which home run number I'd just hit. We were up to 111 by mid-July. And then the rains came. Because Tom Daw at age 12 couldn't take it anymore, so he outsmarted me knowing what foolish pride was. Even in a six-year-old, he climbed up on the fence, and there he waited. And every time, like a giant bird, he'd steal the ball and steal what was rightfully mine. And so the home run derby suddenly became the trail of tears where I'd run into my home. Not to say, Mommy, Mommy, look what your little boy did. But to say, Mommy, Mommy, why are they doing this to me? And my father looked at me and said, Mick, take it to right field. It would have been so easy. I had half the field to hit to. And I looked at him and I said, Dad, that's not my way. That's just not my way. And so we enter the world of professional wrestling where Cactus Jack began to carve out his own style. A style based on blood. A style based on sweat and more than a few tears. And we enter the dressing room in Canton, Ohio in 1989. And one of the most revered figures in the history of our sport walks up to me after a particularly grueling match and says, No one cares about you. No one cares about your style. And with a certain gleam in his eye, he told me, not as a prediction, but as fact, you'll be in a wheelchair by the time you're 30. Well, I've got one week to go, and I've been doing it my way, the concrete way. And I know deep in my heart that people may give lip service and say, oh, poor Cactus Jack, he's got a wife and two kids. But should I fail to get off the ground one of these times and I end up where that wrestler predicted I would, deep in their hearts there'd be a look of joy. There'd be happiness because they'd realize that they were right and that the man who made their jobs just a little bit more difficult was no more. So we're one week away, it would be so easy just to go in, dance around, and make my way to age 30, and then I could retire having proven them all wrong. But that would be kind of like taking the ball to right field, wouldn't it? 
You see, the wrestling world better accept as I approach this milestone of my life that I'm going to crash through my third decade in the sport the way I entered it. My way. Dropping elbows where you can feel the thud of human flesh beating concrete. And if you don't like it, if the older generation doesn't see fit, get a new job. <laughs> bang, bang! Yeah? <laughs> Best talker That's in the world, world 1995. Absolutely. God almighty. And uh, who was that wrestler that said that to Mick Foley, Vicks? Which part? The part about the wheelchair to, to when he's 30. Ooh. That wasn't Flair, was it? I'm not mistaken, it was. Okay. Yeah, it was Flair. Yep. In Canton, Ohio. <laughs> That's right. Wait, is this the same Canton, Ohio show we were talking about with Ole a few weeks ago? No, this is eight. He said 89, so, I mean, they but were Canton, Ohio. gets there at the very end of 89 anyway. <clears throat> yeah, but they have a taping in Canton at the end of 89. Okay. Yeah, Canton, Ohio was a regular stop. Hmm. They they did pretty good there, so. But, yeah, there you go. So, you can tell, you can tell that, Cat, you know, why Cactus had his uh, long-standing heat with flair for all those years. For various reasons. Yeah. So, very understandable. All right, here we go. Still nothing substantial other than an amazing amount of rumors regarding the status of company ownership. The fact Todd Gordon didn't attend any of the shows this weekend only added to the rumors. The HHG company, which appears to be taken over, is a Paul Heyman company, as opposed to the old company, which was headed by Todd Gordon. Heyman and other minor partners. Eamon is wanting to make a move now with more frequent shows and touring to more parts of the country. So, okay. Has it ever been specified if Todd wanted out or if Paul just was like, I want this to be mine or what? I would say more of the latter. Okay. Paul wanted full control. That's obvious. Yes. Because he saw that they were finally starting to get some momentum here and yeah he's one you know it's time to take advantage of it yes and i believe that even though there was a long-standing belief otherwise hhg either was just an existing name on paper from some corporation that a Heyman owned or was just a random name that was put together it did not stand for Heyman, Heyman, and gordon no no, it's H. Heyman, H. Heyman Group. Okay, that makes more sense. <laughs> Heyman, Heyman Group is. Corp? Mm, I guess, but yeah. But why so much mystery around this, though? What's the point? It's Heyman. Yeah, true. <laughs> <laughs> But you made it obvious that something changed because it's a different company on the checks, so... I don't know. I mean, it's, hard, I mean, it's hard to say with Paul Heyman, you know? Yeah. He does He does what he does, and who knows with him. He's he's an interesting character, to say the least, in wrestling history. Yeah. 
There's some one to see the Rottens put back together since Public Enemy and the Pitbulls have been done to death and they have no other tag teams, but Heyman doesn't want to violate stipulations since the Rottens had a match with the Pitbulls that they lost for the losing team had to break up forever. And they've got another team coming in soon to feud with Public Enemy anyway. Yes. The Gangsters. Well, yeah, and a, f- a few a few teams, too. So, because the Dudleys get started up and run this time as well. Yeah. And, and, then, and then the Eliminators start starting in uh, August, September. And Raven and Richards so, become more of a permanent Raven and Richards. Team. Yes. Yes. Now you're down Benoit and Malenko, because Benoit has got the visa stuff. But no one knows that's going on yet. No. Shane Douglas is doing the gimmick where he says he wants to turn ECW into clean wrestling, like WF, all the rules strictly enforced. It won't take objects from the fans. Mm-hmm. And we should mention, it, too, um, we wanted to play, because it aired on TV this week, the Bill Alfonso debut, but it is like the worst of bad 1995 ECW house mic audio. Yeah, it's just one of those things where it's, all you could hear was the house mic. It wasn't coming, coming through yeah. over the over the production, and uh, yeah. So Alfonso starting up, so that's uh, you know that whole thing's getting fired up. Uh, and Torch said, although changes in ECW's hierarchy are ongoing, as of the last two weeks, Todd Gordon has not been taking part in day to day business operations of ECW. And he talks about the corporation called HJG Inc. has picked up the slack on past due bills and is issuing paychecks to the wrestlers. No one other than Paul Heyman is quite sure exactly what or who HHG Inc. is. <laughs> well. Yeah. He's uh, HHG Inc. <laughs> so here's something I've always wondered. Where was Gabe working out of after this transition? Was he still working out of the pawn shop despite Gordon not owning any of the company anymore? I don't know. Because he wasn't, he wasn't working out of Paul's parents' house at all, right? So... I've always wondered, like, did the did the pawn shop just kind of stay part of ECW for a while? Yeah, I, yeah, it was all part of that because I mean they, they still advertised it. Uh, I think in '95 on the local. So, yeah. All right, well, let's move on to Smoky Mountain Wrestling now, and uh, they had quite the weekend. <clears throat> the weekend was a disappointment at the gate on the reports from the Volunteer Slam on May 19th in Knoxville, where that was one of the best house shows there in a long time. Knoxville, which dealt with a something of a television taping, drew about fifteen fifty and a ten thousand dollar house, even when the money back guarantee gimmick, which up to this point had been successful every time he'd been used in the past. <clears throat> in this case, Jim Cornette promised that he and Terry Funk would not turn on Bob Armstrong during their match with the gangsters, or Cornette would refund everyone's ticket money. Yet when Cornette and Funk turned on Armstrong after the match, and Cornette threw fire at him, reports for people weren't surprised or really all that outraged either. He didn't violate the letter of the pre-match stipulation, although many would argue he violated what he gave everyone the impression this tip for the money-back guarantee was about. The Texas death match was excellent. The gangsters are improving. Every comment that can be said about Funk has been exhausted. But suffice to say, once again, he proved that they are deserved, and Armstrong did more than usual. Funk piled drove Mustafa Saeed through a table to win the first fall. New Jack then put Funk through a table and pinned him for the second and third fall. Mustafa pinned Armstrong on the fourth with a low blow. Armstrong was out, but Funk threw a coke in his face to revive him. D'Lo Brown hit Funk with a blackjack, and he was pinned for the fifth fall. Armstrong gave New Jack a pile driver for the sixth fall. Both Funk and Jack were laid out to start the seventh fall, and Funk got to his feet first and was declared the winner. Jack was helped out in the ring. 
Cornette and they grabbed the house. Micah said, how you promised everyone he'd get revenge on the gangsters. And now that he got his revenge, he wanted to pay back Armstrong for helping him. And then threw a fireball at him. Funk and Cornette beat up Armstrong, and Cornette shoved his shoe down Armstrong's throat. Steve Armstrong did a run-in, but was cut off by Buddy Landell. Boo Bradley then came out, and out came a newcomer called The Punisher. Sunset Sam McGraw from North Georgia Wrestling, who used a swinging net breaker, not well executed at all, on Bradley. They both Armstrongs and left them all laying. Punisher's going to be on Cornette's bodyguard. It was only about this past, thanks, this past Thanksgiving that Cornette lost the match, where the stipulation was that Cornette could never cross paths with Armstrong in Smoky Mountain. Though we've already seen plenty of evidence that those type of stipulations don't mean anything here. Yeah, there was that. And that was the stipulation to that film, Thanksgiving Thunder. And we're going back on it seven months later. Um, it is cute, though, that, you know, the stipulation was turning on him during the match. So we'll turn on him after the match. So that's the way around it, but... I mean, if you specifically advertise it that way, isn't that also supposed to be a hint that he's turning on him after the match anyway? If you were smart enough to read into it, yeah. Hmm. Um, what did you think about how this played out? The cornet, the whole Bayface run, and then the end here? I don't know, because it's so tinted by the gangsta side of it, which feels, you know, increasingly uncomfortable for a number of reasons all these years later. Um, I mean, the idea... I mean, it's an angle that plenty of places have done, like, the idea of him ending up with the rock and rolls because of the common enemy. Like, that's... whatever. But, um... I think they dragged it out too long after they finished the rock and roll gangsta stuff. Well, it's transition into he's with the Armstrongs. Right. More than the rock and rolls now. Right. And then it just turns into... 1976 Jerry Lawler cosplay. Yes, he becomes General, General Cornette. Absolutely, yes. Which what were you? How do, how do you feel about how that turned into where, he, where he's doing the General Cornette? I mean, it's different for Cornette. It but freshened him up a little bit. It did. It got him out of the suit, which he kind of needed. Um, but thing, is, but thing is, he's on WWE programming as Jim Cornette too. I think that's the biggest problem with Cornette. In general, in this run, and what basically one of the things that kills Smokey is that he's all over WFTV as Jim Cornette, and he's doing different things as Smokey. You know, it's kind of like Lawler and Memphis. It's kind of like Lawler and Memphis in a different way. You know, yes. where Lawler's is big time heel on WF television, but he's a bay face in Memphis. Although he can explain that a little bit better. Yeah. You know, but Cornette was just overexposed. By yes. a massive degree. Well, because he's coming to rely on himself and blah, blah, blah. I mean, it makes sense. Certainly. It would have been better if they would have found another manager who could have become that top heel manager. Uh, it wasn't going to be Tammy. It, it wasn't going to be Tammy. I just, it, because, I mean, it just wasn't going to work anyway because she was, she was wanting to go WWF. But... If they could have found that one person that could have really like been a new type of manager or a different type of manager, it probably would it would have worked at freshening up the heel side of things more. Yeah. If you have something like that, you know. Sure. <clears throat> you know, it'd been great in the role. Hmm. Scott. 
Yeah. If Scott, if Scott didn't have his, you know, things going on at the time where he, you know, he's in school. I mean, that's why he, he's gone from Memphis TV for months before almost a year before he comes back in 96. Yep. Um, he would have worked in Smokey. Absolutely. Even somebody like, you know, Randy Hales, if Randy wasn't in charge of the USWAs, that's why he could have done it. But somebody different that could have been effective. Because it's just, when Cornette does this heel turn, it's back the same old shit again, even though Cornette's wearing his general outfit. But it's the same, it's the same shit. Just with some different people. Yeah. You know? We're still, it's still Armstrong's and Cornette. We're back to where we were. And they do bring Brad in. So, I mean, you finally get Brad in, and you got stuff going on, but the fans had pretty much seen enough. You know? Yeah. Because, I mean, it's, we can definitely say the talent at this point in time in Smokey, overall, at this point, is as strong as they've been in the while. Yes. Because we'll get into it as we read the results. I mean, they got some they got some very solid talent in the shows. And this is yeah, the beginning of Cornette's Militia with Bud Rowe and uh, Punisher with Cornette. That's the original three. Yes, pun- and since it doesn't say here, and I don't think you said yet, Punisher, uh, Sam McGraw is Barry Buchanan. Well, yeah. All right, the finale on the show was Ricky Morton beat now Snow in a scaffold match where Unibomb came out, and the two of them hung Morton with a noose after the match. Now, although with Funk, no matter how hurt he may be, it's never surprised no matter how good he looks. The big surprise of a pleasant variety was the debut of PG-13 who by all accounts looked incredible. And he yesterday attacked on a match against the Thugs, Dirty White Boy and Tracy Smothers. White Boy hit J.C. Ice with the Buck Snort Blaster, but as the ref was distracted, Wolfie made the save, hitting White Boy with a hubcap. Then once again behind the ref's back. Tracy hit J.C. with the hubcap, and referee Mark Curtis counted the pin for the title switch. But instead, it was a new version of Dusty Finish. USWA Booker Randy Hales was there as the representative. He started out playing babyface official. As when PG-13 tried to walk out early, he said if they did, they'd be stripped of the titles. After the match, Hales explained to Curtis about the hubcap, and Curtis had no choice but to call it DQ. After the match, they taped an interview with Curtis and watching the videotape and said, seeing, seeing that Wolfie used hubcap first, and Curtis got mad because Hales never told him about that, he said he couldn't believe Randy lied to him. This is all to set up a match on June 16th in Knoxville with PG-13, the Thugs, and the Gangsters, and a triangular match for USWA Tag Titles with Hales and Curtis both as referees. Looks like they're doing a promotion versus promotion feud with Hales as the heel rival promoter. Well, little does Dave know that the feud's mainly in, in USWA with Smoky Mountain as the heels. Yep. Because it starts here, in a way. It start it starts with this, and then the Louisville show takes place where PG-13 Rock and Rolls have their angle, and that's when it kicks in Memphis and in, in, in USWA. And when that happens, it basically ends in Smokey, which I always thought was so weird. How you have this feud going on in, in, in USWA television that's hot and heavy and revitalizing the territory, but you're not doing it in Smokey. Well, do you think you think that could have you think that doing that feud in Smokey could have helped business there? And, uh, it, being that it did in much of the USWA territory, I think it certainly could have. I don't know how sure we can be. The other thing I realized never hit me until now. Holy shit, something that Cornette and Zandig have in common. Squandering good interpromotional angles. <laughs> Zandig did it twice. Yeah. IWA and ROH. 
But it's just crazy. I mean, because PG-13 was tremendous in, in their short run here, and then they're gone. I mean, just we talked about this before. Just think if you go full force with this angle and you bring Brian Christopher in as a heel. Mm-hmm. I mean, Doug. You get Doug in there. And, you know, Tommy's coming in anyway. Tommy is part of that. Um, you know, Dundee and Lawler doing their thing, you know? I mean, there's so much that could have been done, but they didn't do it. it, it I wonder if it's financial related, which I don't think the Memphis guys would have cost that much. Well, I mean, it's it's a longer trip. Or was it Cornette not wanting to surrender being the lead heel? We just did this big angle. Mm. I'm the lead. I'm I'm the lead heel. Perhaps. I'm I'm guessing it's more of that. Yeah. But then you're cutting off your nose to spite your face. Yes. Because you have if you have something here that could be a hot angle, and you don't do it because you just shot an angle with yourself, making yourself the lead heel, then that's not good business. Selfish. Yeah. All right, let's read the full results of this show. Bobby Blades over D'Lo Brown in your opener. False cut anywhere. Robert Gibson over Unibomb. Smoking my heavyweight title. Steve Armstrong defeated by Landell by disqualification, but Rowe retained. Dog collar match. Boo Bradley over Killer Kyle. And PG-13 over the Thugs in the USA Tats on a match. Bob Marshall Terry Funk of the Gangsters and Ricky Morton over Al Snow in the Skyfall match. That's a hell of a card. You know, up and down the car. Very strong roster right here. Yeah. And they're about, is... to add, about to add Brad. This right here is the last time the core roster feels this strong, I think. And Tommy Rich. Yeah. And then Gordy shows up. They got a stout crew into the summer of 95. And then now Snow leaves, and it's just downhill from there. Ricky Morton leaves. Yeah, that that incident right there. That night, the Super Bowl wrestling was like their last stand. Mm hmm. In a lot of ways. Well, that weekend, Super Bowl and Fire on the Mountain. <sighs> yeah. And the fact that they did such a fantastic job of building Budrow up for, for Sean. Yes. Just to just to lose like that. I mean I know you you're you're handcuffed with that, but good God, you do such a fantastic job of getting his you know, turn over and everything and building up this heat for him and then he loses. And the fans know that he's not gonna get him again. And you know, so, look, he did at least get the concession that you know, in setting up the turn, Majuro did get a convincing, clean visual fall on Sean. He did. The but... whole point of the match is that he was going to win cleanly, and, <clears throat> you know, the ref was bumped, and then Cornette tries to help him, despite him telling Cornette he was banned from doing so, and that leads to the ref distraction, which leads to the super kick in the pen. Yeah. All right, well, let's rewind a few months to this. TV on May 20th, a Bud Rowe, uh, talking uh, about what's going on as he's been reborn as a heel. And uh, he's very motivated here. So let's go to the clip. Standing before you now, the new Smoky Mountain heavyweight champion. Give your homage to the new nature boy, Buddy Landell. That's right, I'm a repackaged man. Now, Steve Armstrong, these goofs just got through seeing on TV. Me beating you with my patent move, I did it legally, morally, and intentionally. 
Not underhanded, but I beat you right in the middle of the ring with my move. Now let me explain something to you. I went through Bobby Fulton. I went through Bobby Blaze. Now Steve Armstrong, tonight, in Charlotte, North Carolina, you want to challenge the Nature Boy Buddy Landell again? You see, Charlotte has always been run by a Nature Boy. But tonight, the real Nature Boy is coming to town. And I'm telling you what, Steve Armstrong, I'm going through you like I'm going through everybody else, brother. And I'm telling you, Charlotte, North Carolina, there's a lot of people that are wannabes. Monday morning armchair quarterbacks out there saying, I wish I coulda, shoulda, woulda. But the bottom line is you didn't. I'm standing before you now, the Smoky Mountain heavyweight champion, and I'll see you tonight. All right, with me, Steve Armstrong, see you tonight. Yeah, this, this whole run here is as good a Butterow as you ever got. Mm-hmm. As everything. Promo, work, everything. The, 90, the year 1995. He's in great shape. Yeah, he's clean. At least nominally clean, yes. Yeah, I mean, he's not, you know, completely clean, but he's, yeah, like you said. But, yeah, he's, yeah he got himself in, in, in damn good shape. Cutting tremendous promos. <clears throat> He's on fire's character. Yeah, I mean, '95 was a was his career year. And who knows what would have happened if he hadn't uh, fucked fucked up and slipped on some ice at at the WF show. Yep. He could have been WF in 1996 and could have done some things. He was on TV, including he had a match. all three days of the taping. So, and he was only 34 years old. So he's not old by any stretch of imagination. So it's a shame. Total shame how that ended for him. But yeah, he's fantastic here. All right, so it's Charlotte Memories. That's May 20th. And Jim Cornette has a promo on the TV that day talking about his history in Charlotte. So let's go to Cornette. We'll be back to the action on Smoky Mountain Wrestling in just a moment. You know, tonight in Charlotte, North Carolina, Smoky Mountain Wrestling's debut, Carolina Memories, with me, manager Jim Cornette. Jim, I know when I say Charlotte, North Carolina, you have some memory. Chip, you dragged me all the way over here. I'm trying to get ready to go later on, but I want to tell you something about about Charlotte and about wrestling. You see, Charlotte was a hotbed for professional wrestling, the NWA, Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, the old Charlotte Coliseum. And I know that a lot of people out there and everybody within the sound of my voice, you've got your own special kind of memories. How about the the time that the Rock and Roll Express set the consecutive sellout record in the old Charlotte Coliseum back in 1986? It happened, by the way, against the Midnight Express and yours truly. The Rock and Roll Express are going to be there at the Grady Cole Center tonight. Or how about the time at the Great American Bash over at Memorial Stadium on July 4th of 1985 when Ric Flair came to the ring in a helicopter in front of 30,000 people? Or you can go even farther back than that and talk about... uh, the great tag teams like Ole and Gene Anderson and Ricky Steamboat and Jay Youngblood and guys uh, that were just phenomenal athletes for their day, but not only that, for all time. And there's going to be a lot of legends at the Grady Cole Center as well. When you talk about great tag teams, you go back to the 60s even. I'm sorry, Johnny. Johnny Weaver and George Becker. Talk about George and Sandy Scott, the former world tag team champion. Sandy Scott will be there as well, as will Johnny Weaver. You talk about the former world junior heavyweight champion, Nelson Royal. He's a, now a successful businessman in Mooresville, but he'll be at the Grady Cole Center tonight. And, of course, a guy that I never exactly saw eye to eye with, but somebody that I know that everybody out there has a, a warm spot in their heart and in their memories for, the United States heavyweight champion, Magnum T.A., and... Well, uh, every time that he teamed up with Dusty Rhodes of America's team or every time he got in the ring to defend that U.S. heavyweight title, I was always on the other side of the fence. 
At the same time, I know that I'm like everybody else. They had a lot of respect for Magnum TA. And ever since 1986, when that car wreck took place right there in Charlotte, things haven't been the same in professional wrestling as a result of it. But Magnum TA is going to be there at the Grady Cole Center tonight in Charlotte. And, I, you know, at, at the same time, while we talk about the legends, and there's going to be so many more of them, Big Sweet Hanson, of course, Rip Hawk's tag team partner. At the same time, you talk about the legends of wrestling. You've got to think about the stars of today. Besides the Rock and Roll Express against Al Snow and Unabom in a cage, I'm going to be there at ringside with the dirty white boy and Tracy Smothers against the gangsters, a couple of guys that I want to get even with. And everybody there remembers that when I want to get even with somebody, I'll go to any lengths. How about the time that they finally coerced me into getting in a cage with Ronnie Garvin right there in the Coliseum? They were hanging from the rafters to see me get my brains beat out, and Ronnie Garvin didn't disappoint them. Well, I'll tell you something. That's one thing I never did for the people of Charlotte. I never disappointed you, regardless of what you wanted to see. And I'm going to tell you, if you come to the Grady Cole Center tonight, May 20th, in Charlotte, North Carolina, to see Smoky Mountain Wrestling, you're going to see wrestling the way it used to be, wrestling the way you like it, and wrestling the way you remember it. And you're going to see some of the guys that you grew up watching, or maybe told your kids about, or maybe have fond memories of from all those years at the Park Center and the old Coliseum, and on to today. Smoky Mountain Wrestling has brought live wrestling back to Charlotte, and I can't wait to get there and chip. As a matter of fact, i got to get ready, so let me go. Okay, fans, back with more Smoky Mountain Wrestling action straight ahead. If you were a fan of Mid-Atlantic Wrestling, if you remember the NWA, then you don't want to miss Carolina Memories Saturday, May 20th at the Grady Cole Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. Special guests at ringside to appear include Mr. Wrestling, Tim Woods, Johnny Weaver, Sandy Scott, Abe Jacobs, Swede Hansen, Tommy Young, Nelson Royal, and former United States champion Magnum T.A., You'll see Ricky and Robert, the rocket. All right. Um, a hell of a hard sell for this show. (laughs) When that that promo have been better spent hyping something that might have heat and draw money. I think the draw is the legends. Yeah, but but Cornette didn't even really push the legends that hard. He did in a way, but. He kind of was trying to do it all in one shot, you know, talking about, you know, the matches that night, the main matches and talking about his memory, stuff like that. I mean, it was, I thought it was a really good sell job because from him, um, and of course they play, they're going to get the matches out. I mean, they were, <clears throat> they were doing that whole thing the Indies do now, some Indies where, all right, so let's bring in the WWE names. We'll use them as the draws and try to hook the fans with our up and coming and current talent to get them. Okay, these these guys are good. I don't know these guys, but they're good. I'll, I want to see them again. I think that's what they were they were mainly trying to do. But they still have Rock and Roll Express as head, as the main event, and Rock and Roll Express, you know, alone should have been, you know, a draw on the show. <clears throat> so. But anyway, so we got we got this going on. We got these promos. We got playing up the history. Blah 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 blah. He only drew two hundred fans. At the Greater Cole Center for their debut. Even we're bringing back several former Charlotte stars such as Sweet Hanson, Tim Woods, Abe Jacobs, Manon T. A. Johnny Weaver, Nelson Royal. With the exception, all only got polite applause, and those there said that all were stars going back too far in time, late sixties, early seventies. And the fans left only remembered them as prelim wrestlers in the early days of the Ric Flair era. Tommy Young, when the all-time class at rest, did a one-time shot as a referee. 
the first time he refereed since getting his career ending spinal injury in 1990. Cornette did a long speech explaining the turn on Bob Armstrong and why and came out managing Landell in the Smoky Mountain match against Steve Armstrong. See, that's the stupidest part of the show. Because we're in 1995. The internet is in its infancy. How many of those fans in that building would have known what happened the previous night in Osborne? Besides Tim Nolan, Dave Lane? Yes, besides Tim Nolan, Dave Lane. I mean, <laughs> it would have been a, a very, very small subset, if any. Okay? You've just built this up with Cornette as the babyface managing the thugs against the gangsters. Okay? You just ran this promo on the day of the show on television. And then you do this whole thing. I understand why he did it in that way because it's not not it's not him screwing over the fans in Knoxville or whatever or understanding I guess that we're going to put this show out on video maybe. So people are going to know that this show happened that, the day after Knoxville. Well, they don't do that, but also, I mean, also, it's they not, don't. It's not super far. It's about four hours, and they were advertising this Charlotte show heavily on all of the TV, so I, I get it. I don't think it's the end of the world. I get your point, though. I get it, but I, I don't know if I would have done it. Sure. Just do a turn on this show. Hmm. That's all you gotta do. I mean, he would. He wasn't going to be even. Here's the thing: he wasn't even managing Armstrong on this show. Mm-hmm. He was managing Smothers and White Boy. Haven't turned on them. Or shoot you know? an angle at the start of the show, where he's being deluded, heel Jim Cornette, and he thinks he can still corner them against the gangsters. And then Tracy Smothers is like, "No, screw you. The Armstrongs are my family." Blah blah blah. Like, it, maybe do that even. Yeah, something should have been done better than just coming out there and telling everybody what happened. And Cornette was apparently cheered both before and after the speech, even though the speech was meant to turn him heel. It was an excellent speech. So there you go. So Tommy Young called Cornette using a tennis racket for the title saving DQ finish. Apparently the byplay between Young and Cornette during this match was excellent. That's probably why I did it. So fuck with Tommy Young again. Um, uh, Dan Severin who's over here the last time he was in the city for the USC show drew no crossover fans and beating Bobby Blaze yeah Dan Severin's on his show too defending the NBA title all the old timers love talking with Severin the crowd popped because Severin launched Blaze with suplexes but nobody took Blaze on offense against him seriously and Bobby Blaze had been smoking Mountain heavyweight champion earlier in the year um <clears throat> The Thugs beat the Gangsters in a three-and-a-half-star street fight, but the finale saw Al Snow and Unibom beat Rock and Rolls in a cage match when Cornette Landell came to the ringside and Cornette threw the rack at the Snow who used it for the pin in a one-star match. Let's read the results. False Cannon where Boo Bradley and Killer Kyle. Stevie, Stevie Armstrong over Buddy Landell. Dan Severin over Bobby Blaze. Thugs over the Gangsters and Snow and Unibom over the Rock and Rolls. Okay. You've seen this show, haven't you? I don't think I've seen the handhold of this now. Really? I, I know it was a bad show. I, I did. Yeah. I watched it. And uh, <clears throat> it's been a minute since I watched it. And mm-hmm. my thoughts 
from that uh, old form on Perosa and Only is gone for some reason. That Smoky Mountain stuff's gone now. Mm-hmm. When they went to the new board, it got erased. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, I mean, this is a this is a bad moment for Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Yes. Because um, they, they were really wanting to make Charlotte into a big deal for them. And this was proof that that wasn't going to happen. All right, what, what, what were you going to say? So there is also something else that goes on at the show. Um, for some reason, there is a column in the Torch that claims to have been written by Dr. Richard Kimball, Torch guest correspondent, about this show. The yeah. column which ends with... Uh, Dr. Richard Kimball has no, had no idea that Bruce Mitchell of Greensboro, North Carolina, has been a columnist for Pro Wrestling Torch since September 1990. As of this writing, Dr. Kimball remains at large. We fast forward to the Bruce Mitchell annual year-end quiz in the Torch yearbook, Chris, and we mm-hmm. go to question number 16. Was I really sitting in a seat in the balcony during that SMW show? Oh, wait, excuse me. Um, there was, there may have been another question about this earlier, but this is the important part. But contextually, I just realized that. But yeah, was I really sitting in a seat in the balcony during that SMW show wearing a white Duke cap and a pair of sunglasses when Jim Cornette and tellingly Buddy Landell came up the stairs to beat my ass? A, yes, B, no, C, maybe. <laughs> do you, do you have a guess as to what the answer is on that multiple choice question? Maybe. No, the answer was A, yes. <laughs> well, there you go. Yes. Yeah. <clears throat> yep. Oh. Well, have we been over that whole thing before about where the heat between them started? Yes. Besides the residual we, uh, torch heat. Okay, yeah, we've talked about all that with the... Uh, what Who Bruce claims he got go-aheads from before mentioning them in a column and all that, which... Eh, don't want to get too in the weeds on that. No, we don't. All right, so that's USWA. I mean, that's Smokey. Now let's go to USWA. And we go to the Torch for their uh, TV report. Downtown Bruno came out and began talking about his long history of the Memphis Territory, recalling that he first was around on November 8th, 1986, when USWA was called the CWA. He talked about other managers who came through the territory, such as Jimmy Hart, J.D. Costello, and Jim Cornette. He talked about Miss Texas for spreading USWA with that piece of trash, Eric Embry, <laughs> and said he was reestablishing the downtown connection and brought them out one by one. So let's go to downtown Bruno, and let's see who his downtown connection is. Downtown Bruno, that's the stupidest name I've ever heard. Talent in the world is here in the USWA. It just needed my guidance to bring it together. A coalition, a commission, a downtown connection. By the way, why does Bruno look so much taller in this era? Is it just Lance getting old and shrinking? Maybe. Maybe. So first of all, you've got a guy by the name of Gorgeous George III. He needed somebody to watch his back. He needed somebody to be with him, and he's got somebody to be with him. I'd like to bring George and his valet out here at this time. Come on. Now, what do you think about that? You've got gorgeous George III, and Karen is with him. That's right. Uptown Karen's going to look after his affairs. Uh, Are you sure you are all right with that? Yes, I'm all right with that. I'm the one that called him out here, ain't I? 
Now, you've got a wrestler that to me is the most incredible talent ever to come to the USWA. I'm talking about a man that's a technician, that's a psychiatrist, that's a brain surgeon that knows what he's doing in the ring. I'm talking about the Royal Flush Man himself. I'd like to bring out my good friend, the gambler. The gambler, huh? Well, and all, all of these are members of the new downtown connection. The new downtown connection. Now, every connection needs a little muscle. Every connection needs somebody to kind of be the big man. Yeah. And we've got that man right here. You know, you got a bunch of goofs around, but there's only one real muscle man. I'm talking about Johnny Rotten. Well, he's brand new <laughs> to the USWA. He's been around here a few weeks, and he fits right into now your look mold. at this. Johnny Rotten, the gambler. Gorgeous George III. Uptown Karen. Downtown Bruno. And you know what? Last but certainly not least, even though he put me in a court jester suit in 1987, I forgave him, gave him another chance. I'm talking about the man that's made me some money, Brick House, Bunk House, the man, B-R-O-W-N. Brick House Brown coming out. You understand, this man is the ace in the hole. We've had our differences, we've had our problems, but that's a thing of the past. Look at this body, look at that mind. If you knew what was going on in there, Lance Russell, you'd be scared. But you know, I've got a hit list now, you understand. Uh -huh. There's a lot of people in the USWA that have teed me out. A lot of people that I don't care nothing about. You know, you got your Bill Dundee's, you got your Jerry Lawler's, you got your Wolfie D's, you got your Jamie Dundee's. Okay, but right now, my hit list is concerning one person, one individual, somebody that has tried to make a mockery out of the beautiful uptown Karen. Somebody has tried to make a mockery out of me. Somebody that came around here four or five years ago, Miss Texas. Okay, wait a Miss minute Miss Texas is right at the head of your list. Right? She's at the head of my list. She is the list. My book's mighty thin, and she's on page one, page two, and page three. That's all there is to it. See, one, two, three. She came around here with some fly-by-night named Eric Embry a few years ago. He came and wanked, because he's a piece of trash. And he brought trash with him. That's what Miss Texas is, a piece of trash. Well, guess what? The reason I've got this is when you've got dogs around, you've got to have signs like this, you know, for the dogs in the auto face. What I've got here is a can of dog food. Cameraman, zoom in on this. That's dog food. And what I'm going to do is challenge Miss Texas to a match where the loser has to eat dog food. How do you like dog food, Bruno? I don't like it one little bit, and I'm sure she don't either, because you understand, Miss Texas, you thought you could humiliate me? You thought you could humiliate Uptown Karen? Well, guess what? The shoes on the other foot, girl, because I'm going to make you eat this dog. How's that smell, Hey, like? come on, Bruno. Get hey, that hey, stuff you know out of there. We're I going could. up to Karen. Hey, let me say one thing, because it's like Mama says. It feeds that way. Sometimes. Save me, Corey. Downtown connection. <laughs> okay, we're ready for action here, Lance. Opening by uh, USW. <laughs> well, basically, think about this new incarnation of Downtown Connection, huh? Featuring the developmental stars of World Championship Wrestling <laughs> and Johnny Rotten and Brickhouse Brown. <laughs> so Brickhouse Brown, Gambler, and Gorgeous George the Third from WCW. And, and Johnny uh, Ron. And, and Sid's buddy Johnny Ron, yes. But I love Bruno mentioning uh, Brickhouse in 1987. Mm -hmm. Continuity in Memphis, as always. So, yeah. And of course, Uptown Karen is Bruno's wife, which yes. Lance talks about there in a sly way, doesn't he? Yes, a Scottish woman that he met on a WWF <laughs> European tour. Yes. Yes. Um, 
Okay, so just in totality, because I don't think we've talked about this that much, your WCW people were sent here via WCW are Gambler, Gorgeous George III, Chris Canyon, uh, uh, Chipman, Mr. World Class. Yeah. And is there anyone else at this point or later? Oh, Scott Studd. Scott, yeah, Scotty Riggs. I think that's it, right? Yes. Yep. All right, so Miss Texas comes out, and uh, Bruno shows up as well. Wait, who comes out, Chris? Miss Texas. Over where? And they have an argument. Over here. And they have an argument about the Loser East Dog Food match. And Uptown Karen showed up as well. So uh, let's go and see what happens here as uh, Miss Texas uh, gets outnumbered pretty quickly. The match had to eat dog food. So you better get ready and open wide. Well, there's no doubt about it. I don't think Bruno understands totally the challenge that he's just made. He comes out here waving the can of dog food, but you may be the one ended up. Let me tell you something. When you refer to me, you call me mister, you call me sir. My name is Downtown Bruno. It ain't nothing else ugly. And I'm going to tell you something right now, girl. You're going to have that dog food in your face. You're going to eat it. You're going to swallow it. Matter of fact, there it is. I'm going to do it right now. Hey. <laughs> uh, Bruno didn't find easy goings there when he hit Miss Texas. Look out. Here comes Karen. Karen down on the floor. Miss Texas going after her as Bruno was knocked down by Miss Texas. Oh, look out. Johnny Rotten, big Johnny Rotten picks Miss Texas up. And now they hold up Miss Texas. Here's Brickhouse Brown out too. What is it? Oh, Oh, now that's just real great, Bruno and company downtown connection oh man let's get out of here let's take a break we'll be back in a minute okay we got it coming so they put dog food in her face and for once (laughs) in wrestling it looked like real dog food too yeah it did look like real dog food so uh yeah that's how they uh Heated up the angle from Monday night to Coliseum. Okay. <laughs> All right. Also on television, Doug Gilbert came out and said he'd like to wrestle, but no one would team with him. He said Tommy Rich, his former partner, is under contract with another organization, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. He said three people turned down a $2,500 offer to team with him, but finally someone did accept. They then showed a tape of someone counting through the bills, and as the camera panned back, it revealed Jerry Lawler. This is not on the show we have because this is on the Memphis show. The show we have is the syndicated version. Yeah. So, uh, TV main event was Doug beating Brian Lee after Jimmy Harris's interference background. I mean, back, back, background backfired. Of course, Jimmy Harris being Jim Dotson. Yes. After the match, Doug was attacked two on one. Announcer Dave Brown caught the attention to the fact that no one came out to help Doug. Well, nobody could really trust him. Also on TV, Bill and Jamie Dundee defeated Edric Hines in the red jacket. Bill never tagged in, while Brian Christopher tried to convince Wolfie D to turn on Jamie. Wait, who's red jacket? I know who yellow jacket is. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, Coliseum on the 22nd. We had Gorgeous George third over King Cobra. Scott Studd over the Gambler. Davey Haskins over Johnny Rotten. 
Uptown Karen over Susan Sapphire. Miss Texas won the loser eat all food match over Downtown Bruno. Brian Christian Wolfie D over Bill Dundee and JC Ice. And Brian Lee and Jimmy Harris over Doug Gilbert and Jerry Lawler. Can you guess what happened here? Doug turns on Jerry Lawler. <laughs> I mean, that's what I was going to guess, yeah. Um, the feud between Brian and, and Bill and PG-13 on opposite sides was an interesting feud, but I think they figured out for the right reasons that we needed to stop that. Because PG-13... It, it was crazy that they did that deal because PG-13 was really starting to catch on at that point in time. And then you want to yeah. kind of tease dissension with them. I get the deal with the, with Bill and Jamie and Bill and Wolfie and the angle there, but why do you want to fuck that up? So luckily they got out of it and then went to PG and rock and rolls, which really cranked it up. Yeah. But it is interesting looking at Memphis here, pre Smoky mountain stuff. Yes. Right here in this, this time period. All right, let's go to the GWA in Kalamazoo, Michigan on May 19th for 250 fans. Crom over Ray Roberts. Steve Nixon over the Shark Attack Kid. Benson Lee was in no contest with Tex Monroe. And then we have El Samurai, not new fans. Ray Roberts and Tex Monroe over Brian Rollins, Crom, and Rick Matrix. Dan Severin retaining the Bayward Hotel over Max Anthony. Osamu Nishimura over Frank Stiletto. Oh. And our main event, Sabu over Judge Dredd by Countout. You can tell who was in charge of this show. Yes. So we have actual New Japan, Osamu Nishimura as the same, on the same card as not New Japan's El Samurai. Yes. And we have the answer to our morning genetic question. Let's go to MTW. <laughs> yes, we They did. ran a show on May 20th at the Sheridan Community Center in Taylor, Michigan, in front of 325 fans. Andy Fish and Bobo Brazil Jr. defeated Scott Stevens and Chris Pilon. Hey, Tex Monroe over Brian Rollins. Brian Rollins, of course, Bix. Is that uh, who I think it is? Yes, Blue Meanie. Blue Meanie, that's right. Max Antino, Ray Roberts, vice qualification. Tommy Knox over Otis Apollo. In your uh, nostalgia match, Chris Carter went to no contest with Mickey Doyle. Well, wait a second. No, Ma- no Muhammad Saad involved, too? <laughs> no, no. Uh, handicap match, Steve Nixon and Ray Roberts over Calavera Cortez, Rico Rodriguez, and the Rude Boy. And then our main event for the MTW Heavyweight title, Marty Giannini, reason why he's not in ECW, won the championship beating Bruiser Bedlam. Yes. And then and Mar- he, Marty would defend this title at ECW. And he would lose it to Al Snow at the Smoky Mountain Super Bowl of Wrestling. Mm-hmm. Where Marty was the replacement for Chris Benoit when Chris Benoit had his visa issues pop up. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Yes. And I did check in case anyone's wondering, because it is a Detroit area show. Rude Boy is not Bobby Rude. He didn't start wrestling until 98. And it's not Rudy Gonzalez either. Mm, I would not think so. No, but because it's it's you know it's his actual home area. You know, is like Windsor, Detroit. I figured I'd mention just in case. All right, uh, let's go to Sam DeSero's Windy City Wrestling. They had a Battle of the Belt show on May twentieth in Hammond, Indiana, which drew thirteen hundred eleven fans and eleven thousand one hundred five dollar gate. Huge success on this Randy show. 
Windy City will be running dates in June in Canton, Chillicothe, and Columbus, Ohio. Interesting. Not very and, windy, windy City there, though. Hammond kind of is, but... <clears throat> yeah, and I didn't see any results of the show either. So Dave had all these numbers and no results, which was interesting. But who knows? Um, I'm trying to think who would be on this show. Um, it's Windy City Wrestling... In 1995, so I have no idea who would be working on this show. So, yeah. Oh, I found the results. How about that? All right, so uh, the Night Watchman over Black Iron, Denny Cass, Bill Bill Wilson, and Haystacks Ross over Trevor Blanchard, Scott Damore, and Bobby Clancy, Steve Boz over Brandon Bishop, Severance went to a double count out with Kodiak. Candy Devine defeated Tony Alexis to win the women's championship. Another Mike Anthony, not Mike Lazansky, beat Christopher Daniels. Turbo over Danny Dominion. Ripper Manson over Kevin Quinn to win the middleweight title. Daniels Quinn and Daniels and Quinn teamed up to beat the Texas Hangmen to win the tag titles. And that I presume by ninety five would be Mike and Tom, right? Yeah. Mr. Electricity Steve Regal defeated Mike Sampson by disqualification. And then a battle royal won by Frank Melson. Chris, say his full name. Frank the Tank Melson. Thank you. <clears throat> so, yeah. So there's, there's your results there for, uh, for that show. Battle of the Belts. <laughs> That was their annual right. big show at this point. So, well, we, yeah, yeah. All right, the American Wrestling Federation. No, we don't have any results or anything, but their TV during our week had something interesting. As we get the return of the fabulous Freebirds, let's go to the clip. Didn't Global just do this a year ago? Yeah, but no, I was watching that. Ladies and gentlemen, being back in the dressing room, the shock was evident on the faces of all the other wrestlers here in the American Wrestling Federation when Michael Hayes said he was taking a walk down Bad Street. No one thought he would be reuniting the Freebirds. Yeah, yeah, you know I'm in the mood to smack somebody in the face. I want to let everybody know, everybody at the top of the ladder there at the American Wrestling Federation, that nobody pushes the Freebirds around. Nobody pushes Michael around. Nobody pushes Jimmy Jam around. Nobody pushes Terry Gordy around. Nobody pushes Buddy Roberts around. Nobody pushes nobody around. If anybody has any idea of doing it, they need to can it, Pally, because the fact is this. We didn't just fall out of yeah, no fucking tree. We didn't come here just to play around. We got a reputation. We're going to keep the reputation, and somebody is in a lot of trouble. You know, look at it this way. If it's a fight you're looking for, and it's us you want, heed these words of warning. Back up and punt. Because it's always third and long anytime you face the fabulous Freebirds and Brother Jimmy Jam hit the nail on the head. This ain't the only resource. We ain't the only two guys that lived in the last house on the right. Do you remember that, Alperstein? You should have never, ever tried to jack me around. We'll be back. 
Who even saw it's... this though? Like the because it's the first because I don't think the first AWF run was still airing on MSG by that point. It, it was had, it was on syndication. I know I we know. didn't have it. <clears throat> but here's the thing. Here's the thing though. Doc Hendricks was on WF Television on April fifteenth. Well, we talked about this before because we did a show. I think last year or was it a few months ago where he was on both. <laughs> so he's on WWE television with the short haircut as Doc Hendricks, and here he is here as Freebird Michael Hayes. <laughs> and meanwhile, Jimmy Jam has his uh, airline pilot haircut still. Yes. Last time he's yes, he drink. does. Okay, no, they still are on MSG. We just didn't keep track of it as well because I don't remember seeing much of this. I said they they definitely were on television in places for sure. I yeah. mean, they're about to do the TV taping. But everyone that never really that never aired anywhere I know of, so right. But everyone remembers the '96 shows when they were in wider syndication, better. Yes, well, yeah, that's when they were in Atlanta. Yeah, and they were on bigger stations and stuff. Yeah. So, anyway, an interesting look at, at a at, you know at this point in time at Michael Hayes and Jimmy Garvin how they looked and. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I always, I always like it to see to see somebody on one TV show look completely different than they are on another TV show, especially you know it's, it's WWF involvement. Yeah, <clears throat> but remember, he's Doc Kendris in WWF. He's not Michael Hayes. So there yeah. you go. All pro wrestling, a very early APW show in Coalinga, California, on May twentieth. We have Michael Manis over Boom Boom Kamini. Rick Thompson over Frank Dalton. Thought he'd be bigger. Lumberjack match, Steve Rizzona over Danny Garcia. Not The Rock's ex-wife. Or, the, uh, or Cal- uh, Fred Death to Danny Garcia. Who is it's Daniel well, Garcia. Also, he's not alive yet. That's also <laughs> Daniel Garcia. Vic, I know, but also I just realized he's not even alive yet. Cowboy Lang over the little nasty boy. Mike Diamond over Joe Applebomber. Robert Thompson and Chris Cole over El Mexicano Blanco and Sum Diablo. And a 13-man battle royal won by Michael Modest. Hey, I forget. Are, is Robert Thompson kin to Rick? I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on that. Okay. Um, but yeah, very early APW because they start either very late 94 or very early 95, right? Yeah, in fact, it wasn't really using the APW name. This is just it was the, something else. Like Pacific Coast it's Promotions like, or whatever. Yeah, Pacific Coast Sports or some shit like yeah, that. Yeah, that, that's it. That's it, yes. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, you know, 1995, we, we, we got Daniels on the Windy City shows. We got Monas here. Robert Thompson. So, <clears throat> so we got the uh, we got some, the, the guys that are about to be big names in any scene the rest of the decade here, and... Uh, in their younger days. Yes. No Vinny so, Massaro. The Indies are changing. No. The Indies are changing. Late 96, I think. Which, by the way, just because this just happened and because uh, this is the APW thing, even though he's not there yet, I am so happy that with the showings he's been putting on lately that that's a guy who's finally starting to get his flowers and probably will at least bring more attention towards the old APW stuff, too, I would think. Although, not the easiest stuff to find or license. No. All right, let's close out with a small truncated WF section here. 
Regarding Diesel's elbow injury, his elbow landed wrong and his hand was in the wrong place at the in-your-house match against Sid during the powerbomb and chokeslam spots. Although he didn't work much at television over the next few days, he did work wearing an inline skating elbow protector in the ring against Sid in six-minute main events during the Eastern Canadian House Show run the following weekend. After the match in Montreal on May 19th, it was expected he might miss the rest of the tour, particularly since the May 21st show in Trois-Rivières was not expected to draw well and had already had, had an IC title change planned. <clears throat> but apparently it's a favor to do Joanne Rougeau. He worked the entire weekend against Sid. Apparently the injury became worse as the weekend went on. Reportedly the pain became unbearable as one of the chips lodged in a nerve. Bone spurs and chips are in the elbow are probably fairly common in any wrestler, particularly those in their 30s. Diesel is 36. Those who have done heavy tricep movements in training, but they're often one of those pains people simply live with. The chips lodging in the nerve was apparently the difference. Yeah, I'd say that would suck. Yeah. To have that happen to you. So, but, I mean, he doesn't really miss any major time on this, so mm. he works through it. No. He has a surgery. He has a surgery, but he doesn't. he doesn't really miss anything. So, so is that – it doesn't seem like – he has anyone... surgery. He has, he has a surgery after our week because right. we've already done that shit. And it doesn't seem like Sid gets heat for this. So is this just – this is just now freaking it wrong, right? It's a freak accident. I'm not, and I'm saying not even necessarily his fault. Just for whatever reason, he landed on his elbow bad twice. And you can see it in the footage that his elbow is sticking out more than it should be, and he lands on it hard. Yeah, just a freak accident, which that happens. Mm-hmm. Just because somebody gets injured in the ring on a bad spot doesn't mean somebody was actually at fault. It just could be something an accident. Yeah. All right, Raw, May 22nd. Saw Shawn Michaels return to a huge reaction. Michaels and Brett got the best reaction all three nights of TV tapings. This was a tape Raw, too. And the live show was week four after the pay per view. Uh, Shawn returned pinning King Kong Bunny with a super kick. They're changing their philosophy completely because a 200-pound Michael superkick has knocked out monsters like Diesel, Sid, and Bundy already. It was about as good as a match Bundy could possibly have. They're not a back of a president at seven, which was hilarious. They're going as far as with this gimmick as possible, hopeful mainstream publicity, and trying to get him on the ballot in New Hampshire. They also heavily hyped building to a Jerry Lola Bret Hart match. And uh, the, the next Raw is that they talked about Undertaker pinning Jared to go to the King of the Ring. All right, so we go to the torch. Showing with Vincent, Vince McMahon narrating footage of Shawn Michaels being double-crossed by Sid and DiBiase, and then previewing the Michaels King Kong Bundy main event. McMahon referred to Michaels as the flamboyant heartbreak kid in the in this pre-tape. And we get Vince and Lawler talking to start the show. Vince warned Lawler that Brett was there. Mike confronted him. Lawler said he's not scared. Razor Ramon was accompanied to the ring by Savio Vega, spelled S-A-V-E-J-O. <laughs> I don't think that's how it's spelled on TV, though, is it? No, no. So, so yeah, so so for some reason, Wade is calling him Savejo Vega. Who was announced as a Caribbean legend. My man acknowledged that Razor won and lost the IC title over the weekend. Called this tape commentary. Well, tape show live commentary. Razor didn't beat Mike Bell. Yes. As Razor and... left the room with, yeah. I was just going to say, before we got to the angle, though, um... As we noted when we covered that in your house, I guess, last year, um, between the Caribbean legend thing and some of the mannerisms you see with Hall 
and Savio, because at one point it looks like he's motioning. Didn't you used to have face paint and stuff at him? It, 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 they are not putting a huge effort into it, but if you know who TNT is, you're supposed to know who TNT he's TNT. Yeah, I guess. <clears throat> so, um, Brett comes out and he confronts Lawler. And uh, Brett has quite the promo here, so let's go to that clip. Brett is about to take it to the extreme. Yes. I hate people that have excuses all the time. And I hate to have excuses. Because I got to ask myself, how in the hell did I lose to you? What do you mean? You worthless little scum. Hey, hey, hey. How did I lose to you? I have to ask myself today whether or not I am a failure on account of you. It was bad enough that I lost my championship belt. I've gone through enough stuff that I don't need a little parasite maggot like you, Jerry Lawler, coming out here and saying that you're better than me. McMahon, get rid of him right now. Get him out of here. You will never, ever be better than me and the fact that you cheat so well. You know, Jerry Lawler, I hate excuses. You know, I have to ask myself how it is that I can look at my mother, who I asked with my whole damn family to watch me kick your lousy, stinking butt. And you know what? I let everybody down, didn't I? You got beat. So you got me, Jerry Lowe. You got me right where you want me. You've humiliated me. You've trashed me. You've embarrassed me like I've never ever in my whole life been embarrassed and I just want to ask you one thing one simple thing what is it going to take for me to get your lousy stinking butt back in that ring one more time so I can destroy you once and for all what about it what about what have you been crawling out for two what about it what about it what about it gonna take anything you want any kind of match any kind of terms i want one more match jerry lawler you got it anything in the world that you can possibly dream of i want one more match one more match what is it gonna take look mcmahon 
you tell him that he has suffered enough humiliation? He's looked like a fool in front of his family. He's looked like a fool in these eyes of these idiots right here. You don't want that my family. I hear you say that I made a fool of myself in front of my whole family. What is it going to take you, lousy rap? What is it going to take? Come on, you son of a Get in the ring right Son of a bitch. What's it going to take? a very 1997 segment there on yep. this 1995 show. Very. I mean, Brett saying shit, you know, on the line, Mike. I mean, yeah. Vince sort of halfway almost getting physical. Yes. I totally forgot this happened in this time period. I mean, yeah, that's crazy. Brett, you know, bringing the, uh, uh, you know, aggression there like you had in 97, early 97 and stuff. I mean, yeah, if you wouldn't have told me this is 95, I would have thought it was early 97. You'd be like, wait, why are they feuding? But. <laughs> well, it's Brett and Lawl. Are they all, you know. Yeah. It's one of those things you, they always, until Brett turned. Well, even with Brett turned, I think Lawler was still doing doing stuff on Brett, but not as much. Yeah. But, uh, Yeah. Great, great segment there. Lower than shit. All right, so you followed that up with Hunter Helmsley beating John Crystal with a facebreaker. Pedigree. Well, no, 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 no. This, I think, would be the Ace Crusher, wouldn't it? Was it? I thought he was using the pedigree already. Let's see. Or is it a diamond cutter? It, I think it's uh, a... Yeah, it's diamond cutter, actually. He, do, he does yeah, do so it from still, a provide. He, He's still in DDP's finisher. That's right. I remember that. Well, who would have been one of DDP's training partners at the power plant recently? Yeah, him. So, there you go. And DDP apparently called him up and was like, hey. <laughs> Which is why he, he went to another move. Which was already his finish in WCW. The Levesque. Mm -hmm. Yep. Lawler complained that Vince should have helped him when Brett attacked him and even accused Vince of slipping in a few shots at his ribs. Next we get Mr. Backlund for president. Backlund spoke about education, reading, and writing, where Bob advocated the abolishment of the spell check. Summer vacations, where he demands our children go to school 12 months out of the year. My man later said Backlund has to decide for sure whether he's running for president. Should we play this, actually? I forgot about it earlier. We played we, we we play play one. one. We played one last year. I don't know if it's the same one. But we did play one last year. Oh, it might as well. Shit. Go yeah, ahead. and I don't think it's long, so. 
Yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and play it. Although the plebeians have a tremendous amount of abomination for considering Rockland, I always knew that you agreed with my viewpoints. Education. The ecosystem in education in the United States is running amok. And one of the first things I would do as president is make sure that every individual out there gets a job and has the ability to save enough money so he can purchase a dictionary and augment his ability to read. Uh, you know what? Fuck this. This is not good. <laughs> All right. There you go. <clears throat> well, Dave, that was hilarious. Um, as it went to commercial, they showed DiBiase's pet talk to King Kong Bundy. Then we got the video of the 11-year-old and won the house from in your house with his mother and father walking through the house with Stephanie Wyan and being surprised by the bushwhackers who came out of a closet. Insert your own joke here. And we played this last year on uh, the show when we talked about the house. So we're not going to play that again. Allied Powers won a squash match. A clip here to British Bulldog doing a standing backdrop on Mabel on the action zone the day before. My man would tease all throughout the match. Say, Here comes Brett a couple of times. <clears throat> then we get unseen clips from Bam Bam Bigelow IRS from the previous week. Jeff Jarrett, Nutsaker was promoting his next week's Raw Man event. Comma, beat Barry Horowitz. Todd Pettengill announced the night before the King of the Ring there'd be a second annual Hall of Fame banquet at the Grand Ballroom in the Marriott. Ticketmaster numbers were then listed for reservations, where Antonino Rocco was announced as the first inductee this year. <clears throat> King Kong Bundy attacked Shawn Michaels for the bell in their match. As we had their match here. But Michaels drove a knee into him and sent him to the ringside floor. But man referred to Michaels as controversial and charismatic. Michaels confronted DiBiase at ringside and then climbed to the top rope and dove on the Bundy at ringside. As DiBiase jawed with the fans, Michaels jumped in the ringside put his arm around DiBiase in a comedy spot. Michaels returned to the ring only to be thrown into a turnbuckle by Bundy. Michaels took a flare bump over the top rope to the floor. Bundy slammed Michaels at ringside. At about 4.40, Bundy clapped on a bear hug. Michaels tried to escape with a victory roll, but Bundy sat on him and scored a two count. They showed Bigelow and Diesel watching the match on the monitor in the locker room. Michaels began to come back, hit Bundy with a top rope body block and a weak-looking super kick. Bigelow and Diesel didn't walk to the ring. Diesel offered his hand to Michaels. Michaels told Diesel to hold his hand high. Michaels high-fived like they were a team again. Then they hugged as Diesel's music played. Let's... Alright, so I want to watch the entrance and then we'll watch the end, because... I'm, I'm, I remember the fans just like went nuts for Sean when he came out. So let's see this. I'm out of here. I guess so. King Kong Bundy means business. He means million dollar. Everybody wants on that great kid, and you sort of wonder what sort of reception. What we're gonna find out right now. Here he comes, the heartbreak kid, Sean. Monstrous King Kong Bundy. 
The question is whether or not Michaels physically is ready to face an individual the size of King Kong Bundy. It was only seven weeks ago. Look at him behind. The match against Michaels King Kong Bundy. Is that Billy Silverman refereeing? The match got even officially underway. I think so. Yep. Looks like him. How about that? Alright. Uh, like I said, this is my favorite era, Shawn Michaels. Bearded baby face. And oh yeah, the fans went nuts nuts for that motherfucker. And uh, they were ready for him to be a baby face. And uh <coughs> he was totally refreshed in that role too. I right, keep going backwards here. Mm-hmm. Um, Don't more to go. But keep going backwards. All right. So about here. Yeah. Um, I was yeah. just going to say before I play the clip again, I wonder how much is different if he just keeps the beard. A lot. <laughs> he looks so much harder edged with it. I know. <clears throat> And then when he starts, and then when he shaves the beard off, you know, then he starts being ho- hokey babyface Shawn Michaels, in a way. It doesn't start immediately, but it it, it goes in that way. That, that's when he becomes babyface Shawn Michaels, who Vince and Doc Hendricks talk on comment about on commentary as if they want to have sex with him. <laughs> and I, I think also when Jose Lothario becomes a, a regular character too. Yeah. But anyway. Big Daddy Cool and Bam Bam Bigelow making their way to the ringside area, no doubt, to congratulate Shawn Michaels. What an unbelievable comeback. Can you imagine Michaels victorious over King Kong Sunday? Seems like the crowd's into this stuff, but they just dubbed over it all. Michaels taking a look at Bam Bam and Big Daddy Cool for the first time. Let's let's see what's going to happen here. Diesel would like very much to shake hands, and we see a reluctant Shawn Michaels. What's going on in Michaels' head right now? I told you, there's still some animosity here. The handshake or not? I don't think so. No, he's backing up. He says no. See, Shawn Michaels, he don't need anybody. Uh, Wait a minute. What does that mean? This is, I believe, yes, this is what they used to do. I think I know where they're going. Yes, here we go. We're up there. All right, Michaels is going to get out of steam up in. Yes, nothing but net. The leaping high five. Michaels, big daddy, cool diesel. There can be no doubt. <laughs> Back to get- Bam, and the third wheel. Yeah, I have thoughts on that in a second. And the World Wrestling Federation champion and the beast from the East. Oh, yeah. What a reunion. What a victory for Shawn Michaels. And he did it all by himself. However, you can and they do a bit of an all for one, one for all. Ted DiBiase, yeah. Psycho Sid, Native American Tataka, or the other million. Bam Bam even posing with them? Yeah. Okay. Obviously, they should not have taken this out on Bigelow, 
But, because I completely forgot Bigelow was part of this segment, you see the segment and you totally get why they resented how he was being inserted into their thing. Yes. Yeah. He was out of place. Yeah. He was, I mean, like I say, I mean, he just, he's, it just, it doesn't fit. Yeah. I mean, it's, look, we, we need to mention though, you know, the Sean turning was not the original plan. Yes. Sean turning was something they decided after mania, after Sean sandbagged the match with diesel, basically made the match about him. And who knows what happens with Bam Bam though, because Sean basically gets his push. But who knows what happens in WWF if Sean doesn't turn babyface too? I mean, it was the yeah. it was the best move to make. It was, obviously. Yes. But um, yes. Yeah, so there you go. Good stuff. Lawler gasps for breath after McMahon asked him about Brett's challenge, and then we close the show with Undertaker doing a little promo for next week's main event, which ends up being the main <clears throat> event of the uh, highest rated episode of Monday Night Raw in history up to that point. Mm-hmm. A tape show? Third week the third of the hour taping. of the taping. Yeah. yeah. Which is interesting because Deshaun return happened on a tape show too. Not yeah. live. Yeah. But I guess Undertaker in a real competitive match. It's rare enough on TV that it it, it collect. Yeah. We had a quickie title change over the weekend to push Razor Ramones to first ever three time IC champion. Razor beat Jeff Jarrett on May 19th Montreal on Joanne Rougeau's first show in the latter match. Jeff regained the title on May 21st in Trois Rivers, Quebec. So you get the, the, the switches there. Uh, May 19th in Montreal drew 8,500 and 120,000 Canadian. <clears throat> the IC title change was a three and a half star ladder match. Top change was acknowledged on Raw and some markets and Dave's surprised about this. On the Saturday localized promos for Razor Jarrett matches, they listed Razor as a champion, talking about the title change last night in Montreal. It was never mentioned during the body and syndication. Well, I mean, if it's going to those markets where they're at, they kind of have to do that. Yeah. Um. So, Diesel beat Sid in a half a star main event. The biggest pop of the show was for Jean-Pierre Lafitte, where it's a total bay face for Montreal. On the television show, there's Montreal with the French voiceovers. Lafitte's character is a baby face, and they dub in cheers for him. <laughs> and he pinned Jerry Lawler. One, two, three, kid was at the show in Diesel's corner. Because he's right, still getting, uh, well, he hasn't, I guess, gotten surgery yet, but he just broke his neck a few weeks earlier. Or maybe to get hurt. Yeah. Here's our results. Techno Team 2000, Travis and Troy over Dr. Tom Pritchett and Barry Horowitz. Tatanka over Bob Holly. Jeff Fear and Lafitte over Jerry Lawler. Man Mountain Rock over Mantar. In your uh, Catch Wrestling Association offer match. Yes. The Blue Twins, Jacob and Eli over the Head Shrinkers, Sione and Fatu. Diesel over Sid. Bret Hart over Hakushi. And then Razor over Jared. Now, the middle show was in Halifax, Halifax, Nova Scotia, the forum, where Razor retained over Jarrett, Man Mountain Rock over Mantar, Jean-Pierre Lafitte over Scott Taylor, Diesel over Sid, Fatou over Eli Blue, Tatanka over Holly, Techno Team 2000 over Dr. Tom and Horowitz, and Brett over Hakushi. Hmm. And we have result. Now, this is part of the crew. The other crew? In the Philippines. Quezon City, Philippines, at the Smart Araneta Coliseum. Doink the Clown over Quang. Kama over Aldo Montoya, Henry Ogama over Duke de Dumpsedrosi, 
King Kong Bundy over Adam Bomb, Smoking Guns over Men on a Mission, Shawn Michaels over IRS by Countout, The Allied Powers beat Yokozuna and Owen Hart by DQ in a tag title match, and then Undertaker over Bam Bam Bigelow in your main event. That's a vast difference in places for your for your crews. The yeah. Mariner Times and the Philippines. So where else does this crew go? Is it just all Philippines? Because, yeah, they run the same building um, on the 22nd, 23rd. Yeah, I think it's just the Philippines tour. Um, 24th. Yeah. And, okay, no, there's more. Singapore on the 28th. They, they go see Father there. And the melting pot of sin. That's uh, what it is. Okay, yeah, that's that appears to be the uh, except. Well, okay, Undertaker and then there's, went, there, there's a German tour in uh, in June, but that's separate. Undertaker Undertaker went in to visit the Lady of Third Eye. Yes. So, and to close out WWF from the torch, Dustin Rose negotiating WWF. One stumbling block thus far, though, in negotiations is McMahon wants to change Dustin's name for marketing purposes, but Dustin is resistant to wrestling under another name. That'll change. Yeah, and it'd be the best decision of his life. So, there you go. 1995 on Between the Sheets. Yep. Next week on Between the Sheets, we go back to 1987. Ooh. Where, where we got a lot of stuff going on this show. NWA, Jim Crow Promotions. We got a, a major issue as Rick Root has walked out of the promotion. So what are we going to do with the tag titles? We'll have news on that. We got Dave's thoughts on the television product at the time, and you might be surprised to know what he thinks. Plus, Jim Cornette has an interesting incident in Beckley, West Virginia. So we'll talk about that. Universal Wrestling Federation, Dr. Dev gets injured on television. So we'll talk about that. And we have some uh, CWF notes from Florida. Hey, Roddy Piper shows up on Portland show. We'll talk about that. Midnight Rockers leave the AWA. So what's the AWA going to do about that? Well, we'll find out. Then we'll have uh, news from Kansas City, World Class. We got Memphis featuring uh, Bill Dundee and Paul E. Dangerly having quite a segment on television. So we'll talk about that. Uh, we got tournaments in Continental for various things. And we have actually a clip from Continental. So there's that. And other assorted territory news. We got all the international stuff, including a fun week in Canada where we have clips, Bex, from Stampede. So there's that. And we have clips from Montreal as well. No. It's always a hoot. Oh, yes. New Japan runs a couple of interesting shows. We'll talk about that. Including news on Ricky Choshu. All Japan, they got some problems going on with, uh, with foreigners and Tenru uh, being dissatisfied. And the World Wrestling Federation, where we get to see how the ice cream bars are being made on Superstars. Ooh. And we have the Islanders turning heel on the Can-Ams, so we have news on that. But the biggest news of our week, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Iron Sheet gets arrested. All that more next week on Between the Sheets with our guest. And in doing these notes, especially for the Stampede section, there was only one person that came to mind. The return of Robert O'Connor next week on Between the Sheets. And he he currently has the flu. He told me that he hopes to be better. And then I sent him the notes and said, yes, I cannot pass this one up. 
That's oh. all you got to say about this one. So next week. So, oh, yes. So next week will be a humdinger of a show. So there you go. Next week on Between the Sheets. All right. Bix, thanks as always. You're the rock of the show. And this is Chris in so long from the Peach State of Georgia. Win the Sheets Patreon Special Edition number 67. I'm your host, Chris Zellner, joined as always by my co-host, David Bix and Span. And Bix, it's time to tackle Titan Gate 1992. And as we said in the build-up to all this, this is definitely going to be more than one show. There's no set limit on how many shows we're going to do on this. But we know it's going to definitely be more than one. <laughs> and maybe more than two before it's all said and done. So, uh... The time has come, and uh, yeah, it's going to be a lot of interesting to talk about on this show, isn't it? Yeah, and we know our goal is that the series will go through basically the Ultimate Warrior and British Bulldog firings. We're just not sure exactly how long that will take, pretty much. Yeah, well, there's going to be enough here, believe me, to uh, make up for a, a lot of interesting audio that I don't think anybody's going to be upset <laughs> as far as that, no. Um, and like we noted when we were setting all this up, you know, on the main shows, 
this is the whole set of Titan Gate scandals in 92 that we're covering. We're covering mm-hmm. how the drug and steroid scandals take further shape in 92 on top of the Ring Boy scandal and Murray Hodgson and all that other stuff. And I guess we'll give the disclaimer up front. I mean, it starts off with more drug stuff, but takes a turn quickly. If you do not want to hear about the sexual harassment or abuse scandals, this is probably not a series you're going to want to listen to. Well, that's what, I mean, if you're listening to this, you know what you're getting into. Yes. You know, I, I know I know why you want to give a disclaimer, but if you're listening to this show... Well, it'll be show, clear in the description, whatever, too. Yes. You know what you're getting into. Extra from Wade Keller's A Few Met Clarifications feature in The Torch. Fire on the spot is what Vince said would happen if there was evidence of an employee involved in perpetrating sexual harassment. Phil Mushnick said on KFAN Radio in Minneapolis Monday night, Two weeks ago, my man told me he fully suspected Mel Phillips years ago. He fired him four years ago because he felt he was spending too much time around kids. He hired him back out of sympathy in his heart. Then Friday, when Mel Phillips' name was brought up, he acted like the guy was a stranger. So that's Monday afternoon. Monday night into Tuesday, Phil's writing his column for Wednesday, which gets the front page of the sports section in the post. So here we go. Sex lies in the WF. W.S. Defense, Just More Lies by Phil Mushney for the New York Post. In a world where scandal within legitimate ranks has become an everyday reality, there are many who respond to the staggering tales being reported by men who once served the World Wrestling Federation as tales that are both easily explained and dismissed. After all, we're told pro wrestling is simply a rogue industry behaving as a rogue industry. And that's exactly the mindset W.F. owner Vincent Mann's banking on. And that's exactly what it's empowered the W.F. to do to the people children and adults, exactly as it wishes, when it wishes, and as often as it wishes. The WF is power drunk in the knowledge that its autonomy fully enables it to violate every standard of human decency because right-headed humans possess neither the time nor inclination to do anything about any industry they've always viewed with bemused disregard. Hmm. Never will you encounter a human more cold-blooded, more devoid of honor and provided than Vince McMahon, America's foremost TV babysitter. In your wildest, most twisted dreams, you won't meet up with a licensed man, a miscreant so practiced in the art of deception, the half-truth and the bald-faced lie, as to make the artful Dodger appear clumsy. A George Steinbrenner or a Don King pale in comparison. So help us. Indeed, Annabelle Lecter is the only fictional character who comes close. Ding, 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 ding. So, as we've discussed before, and I'm sure we'll discuss again... Holy shit, did this stick in Vince McMahon's craw for decades. Yeah. <laughs> that the, that Hannibal Lecter line specifically. It comes up in every lawsuit. It mysteriously comes up in Russo's first issue after having taken over the Pro Wrestling Spotlight newsletter completely from in his split from Arezzi. He brings it up. Every time they talk about Mushnick, it comes up. In the... 50, friggin' 50th anniversary WWF book from uh, almost a decade ago in the section about the steroid trial and stuff, they bring it up. It's constantly brought up throughout all the Mushnick litigation and stuff. It, it, it Something about being compared to a fictional cannibal serial killer enraged Vince to a ridiculous degree. <laughs> Now, it is a bit of an exaggeration, especially since we don't know about Vince. We haven't heard about any of the Vince allegations yet. 
but like it, it that and, is a bit. And much. that's the thing with people reading this too, Bix. Is they read that and they're like, "Oh, come on," you know. Now, <laughs> I don't think he necessarily means Vince McMahon eats people. No, I, but I, the I think well, that's the thing, and I think this is where it could just be better written. If your point is to say that there is no better fictional presentation of a sociopath or whatever than Hannibal Lecter, and that you're saying Vince McMahon is a sociopath and that's your point, there are a zillion better ways to say that. Exactly. Comparing comparing him to Hannibal Lecter, which, you know, Sons of the Lambs is very, very big at this time. I mean, actually, when would the the Oscars have been or would they have happened? A month earlier. In March. Well, we're in no, March. No, the same month. We're in March. So it's March. Okay, the Oscars aren't until are until two weeks later on the thirtieth. So it's it's a nominated very favorite. topical. Yes, yes, very topical movie to talk about. And Hannibal Lecter is you know the how he's you know, portraying that movie and everything. I mean, you could you could make your comparison better without making it come off as a cartoony comparison like he does here. Yes. And, now, and, all and, people, the, and people read that and they're like, oh, look at this guy, you know? All of that said, both in general and under the circumstances, it's still completely ridiculous how much this bothered and stuck with Vince for so long. Well, Vince Vince is Vince. What can you say? Yeah. All right. Um, after nine months of examining this man's ways and means, let's pick it up Friday night with my man's spin control appearance on Larry King's CNN show. Following the conviction in, in June of Dr. Joel Zaharian, who for illegally dispensed steroids and other drugs to WWF stars, including Hulk Hogan, ex-wrestlers, ex-ring announcers, and ex-ring boys have been crawling out of the woodwork to report on the record years of blatant sexual abuse, sexual harassment, pedophilia, and drug abuse engaged in and perpetrated by WWF executives, stars, and administrators. So on Friday night, my man appeared on CNN in full knowledge of this steady stream of charges and fully expecting a lawsuit from a 21-year-old named Tom Cole, whose corroborated claim is that he was sexually molested and harassed by WF execs and front office workers while serving WF as an underage ring-assisted gopher. My man met the accusations with 30 minutes' worth of indignation and unblinking lies. Mel Phillips? WFTV ring announcer Roe Boss named by Cole and another youngster is the man who had recruited them and sexually abused them? Mel Phillips has never been employed at WWF. McMahon told King what a strong resolve. To this day, never been an employee. He's used as an occasional laborer. You know, on the occasions when WF is in business. Phillips is well known to the wrestling world as a WF regular for 10 years or more. Monday on the Phil Donahue show, seen among seven of WF's accusers, McMahon amended Phillips' history. Phillips said McMahon is not technically an employee, although he worked with us every day. Oh. McMahon also told King's national audience that he had no idea whatsoever about any sexual misconduct by employees, not even a hint. Yet two weeks ago, during his pour-his-heart-out phone calls, he told West Coast-based journalist Dave Meltzer, then me, that he had let Phyllis go four years ago because Phyllis's relationship with kids seemed peculiar and unnatural. McMahon said he rehired Phyllis with the caveat that Phyllis steered clear from kids. McMahon also said that no charges of sexual harassment had ever been before been level. Baloney. As far back as 1976, Jim Wilson, a former NFL lineman accused of National Wrestling Alliance, exec from, of blackballing him from the business after refusing the excess sexual advances. The WF was a member of the NWA at the time. 
and Wilson's story of fate is well known in the wrestling industry. Oh, okay. So I I I was gonna say I, I Vince is clearly talking about the WWF, so it's kind yes. of bullshit to bring up Wilson. But Vince would know. Vince would know about it. So I kind of get what he's going at. They were a member of the NWA. The NWA itself did get sued. I, I kind of get what he's going with here. I just well, don't know if I would have used that example to make that specific point. What much where Mushnet went wrong in all this to further illustrate his point, he should have said McMahon hired this same executive six years later. Yes. <laughs> that's that's where he should have you know put that in there to to add uh gravitas to you know, this whole thing with this this line of uh you know conversation he's having here yes now he that's hired jim barnett that said we've already talked about i don't want to belabor too much i get that dave and the others are in a whirlwind of insanity at this time and it's a complicated story to explain later Regardless of what you think of how seriously the story is being taken and that it should have been covered better, actually should have, it is still completely fucking insane that the part about what Vince told Phil and Dave just does not stick to this story at all. Yeah. It's bizarre. Yeah. Because, look, at this point, the main story is what Vince did or didn't know. That goes right to the heart of it. Why? Phil brings it up a couple more times in columns later in 92. Dave pretty much never brings it up again. Wade pretty much never brings it up again after this week. Even in the history pieces Dave does years later, this never comes up. And, you know, I asked him about it once and he kind of agreed with my theory. It was just, there was so much going on. Like, he absolutely agreed with me when I asked Dave about it. He said, yeah, obviously it looks ridiculous now that this didn't really stick to the story. But just in the context of the time, just there was so much going on that it somehow slipped through the cracks to really reiterate it. Which, again, is insane. And the other insane part, outside of the questions in Phil Mushnick's deposition about this, as far as I can tell, and those questions are actually the most civil that McDevitt is in that whole deposition. WWF has never addressed or refuted, even, excuse me, refuted or even addressed period this once. Their strategy, it appears, became ignore it. Pretend it never happened. If it comes up, do not say anything. As stupid as that sounds, and as improbable as it was, Holy shit, did that work? Yeah. Anyway, we still got a lot, so let's keep going. In 1985, Wilson repeated his charge on ABC's 2020. McMahon, dripping with sincerity, told King he had begun an internal investigation of all the charges. But later he said all the charges were a bunch of bunk. That's some way to begin an investigation. Yeah. McMahon also said that while he accepted resignations of his right-hand man, Pat Patterson, and his assistant, Terry Garvin... Ex-wrestlers and WF execs publicly charged by at least 10 people as having made sexual advances on wrestlers and as having engaged in casting couch employment practices. McMahon had the colossal gall to suggest that these execs were victims of America's creeping homophobia. Real quick, before we get to Phil's rebuttal of that, this phrasing of charged 
even though in context it's very clearly just made an allegation, McDevitt really tries to seize on that in the lawsuit against Phil and his deposition. Oh, they were yeah. charged? Which I kind of get as a legal strategy, but in context it's very obvious what he means. Yeah. Good God, is there anyone with a more complete track record of teaching kids to hate homosexuals than McMahon? All his employees who have accepted ring roles as effeminate wrestlers have been positioned by McMahon as the villains. Hate has always been a big kitty cell of McMahon's and hatred for homosexuals has been a steady angle pitched to children. In recent tag matches, the Bushwhackers have wrestled the effeminate Beverly Brothers. Each time the Bushwhackers encouraged the kids in the honest to chant, faggots, quote-unquote, at the Beverly's, this scene, Mom and Dad, has appeared on WS nationally televised shows. No, it hasn't. That one hasn't. No, and <laughs> Phil Mushnick, uh, again, I mean, that's wrestling, brother. <laughs> but, 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 it is a fair point to be like, oh, oh, you're saying this is all about homophobia events? Like, oh, oh, who's responsible for more homophobia than you? Like, I get his, it's a fair point, though. Yeah, but he's far from the only one that has done it. Oh, and, of course. You know. I mean, the the Beverly's Bushwhackers thing was kind of a weird, unique kind of egregious, though, because outside of, like, of that on those house shows, like, other than the fact that they wore purple and were managed by the genius, there was never any hint that they were supposed nope. to be effeminate or, or quote-unquote gay or whatever. They were brothers. <laughs> that would be saying it would be incest. Well, if it was with each other, yes. So, yeah, that one's a tough one. Um, anyway. But anyway. Um, <laughs> finally, Friday, McMahon flatly denied he was attempting to reach a financial settlement with Cole in an effort to prevent him from filing suit. He said he's trying to reach him solely in an attempt to get to the bottom of the charges. Monday, McMahon appeared on the Donahue Show with another altered story. He said a possibility existed these ugly charges were true, but then as the show wore on, he fought the charges with the same practice indignation and heart-clutching outrage seen Friday night. What wasn't immediately apparent Monday was that Donahue's studio audience included Tom Cole. The kid and McMahon said on CNN Friday he was trying to meet with, but only to hear his charges and not to seek a financial settlement. Cole arrived at the show in the company of WF employees. Incredibly, Cole had reached an agreement with McMahon before Monday's Donahue show. The conditions of the Cole-McMahon agreement are that Cole will never again be confronted by Phillips, Garvin, or Patterson, Patterson that McMahon provide Cole with a multi-year contract to return his, his position as a ring boy, a gopher with a long-term contract, and that Cole received two years back pay. And that's two years back pay for a teenage ring boy who used to make $100 a show, working no more than 30 shows a year. $70,000. Cole's attorney, Adam Allen Fuchsberg, 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 whatever, uh, said yesterday that the deal is not a payoff, but rather an agreement because Cole has returned to a job he once loved. Not a payoff, but an agreement. Semantic obfuscation. For $70,000 plus, adding a highly paid ring boy to the payroll, the man gets away cheap if it means the preservation of his multi billion dollar TV and toy empire. Certainly, McMahon bought himself out of what was promised to be a devastating lawsuit. They are still facing an unfair termination suit filed by former announcer Murray Hodgson, who claims he was fired after rejecting a WS exec's sexual advances. Fuchsberg said that McMahon, in an effort to save WF, will make a full and sincere admission that the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole are true. 
Oh, really? Uh, yeah, Fuchsberg later in the day sends a letter saying he never said that. Um, I'm not <laughs> sure how much I trust Fuchsberg, but I, I, I don't know what I make of that, though, because whatever you think of Phil Mushnick, and there are a lot of negative things that you can say about him that are actually absolutely true, I don't think he'd make that up. So, I don't know. What do you make of that? I mean... I don't know. <laughs> um, I don't know what to make of it. Let me see real quick if I can find exactly what he said about that. Uh, I, uh, I was misquote. Okay. Uh, at, okay. Uh, okay. First, at no time did Vince McMahon acknowledge having known of the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole, and I was misquoted by Mushnick as I did not say McMahon had offered to make an admission that the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole are true. Um, he doesn't He doesn't say what he said, though. That He says misquoted, but what could he have possibly said that could have been misquoted there? I have no idea. That's really weird. And, to, and also it's made clear that the... The $70,000 was basically supposed to be two years of back pay for if he had continued with the warehouse job that he had just started when he got fired, not the ring boy stuff. This is when he would have originally first become an actual Titan employee. But anyway. <laughs> Fuchsburg. Fuchsburg. Uh, which, boy, I, I could say. tell you a lot of stories that Lee Coles told me about him, but I don't know if we have the time. <laughs> I mean, man, it gets way cheap if it means the preservation of his multi-billionaire TV and toy empire. Certainly, McMahon bought himself out of what was promised to be a devastating lawsuit. WF still faces an unfair termination suit filed by former announcer Murray Hodgson, who claims he was fired after rejecting a of sexual advances, exact sexual advances. Fuxburg said that McMahon, uh, in an effort to say WF, will uh, make a full and sincere admission that since the sexual misconduct claims made by Cole are true. Or that the sexual misconduct claims made by control of truth. I already read this. Fuchsberg said he saw the only final minutes of Don. Yeah, you, you doubled back further than you meant to. <laughs> yeah. It's a lot. He didn't know that McMahon, his agreement, he didn't know that McMahon, his agreement with Cole was already done, had the chance to come clean about Cole's claims, but instead used the Donahue show to continue to try to discredit all the people who had come forward to support Cole's story. And speaking of which, from the Torch cover story. Tom Cole and his older brother were with Basil DeVito backstage at the Donahue show Monday afternoon. DeVito, a vice president, refused to comment. We reached by Torch Weekly at his home Monday night. Chris Los, the other former Marine boy, went public with allegations has isolated himself from further media exposure. And basically just never appears or says anything in this context ever again. Um... Mike Sawyer, who was friends with him and, you know, was doing his little leg drop newsletter at the time, um, has said that all of a sudden one day around this time, Chris Lewis had a very expensive new car. Funny how that worked out. Yeah. Make of that what you'd like. Um, you know, we still have a lot to get through because there's a lot in the Torch and the Observer, mainly the Observer. Um... But it'll probably go by quicker, at least. So as far as the Coles, the way that Tom and, to an extent, Lee, who was not in the... 
No, excuse me. He was like nearby, but he wasn't able to, to see what was going on, and he was in the room because they kept him out of it. But based on what he's always said and what Tom had always said, Fuchsberg, whatever the hell was going on with him, kept c taking breaks with the WWF lawyers and leaving Tom alone with the McMahons, or at least Vince, which I have no reason to doubt that story. And it sure makes you wonder what's going on with Fuchsberg, who was not the initial lawyer. The initial lawyer was Joseph Petura, who they just found in the yellow pages um, in uh, in Utica. And they always said they regretted going away from him because he was the one who took those statements. He really seemed to know what he was doing. But, you know, we'll get more, we'll talk about now it can be told next time when Geraldo's producer got in touch with them and basically threatened to camp out on their lawn if they if Tom didn't agree to do an interview. Um, she ended up pushing on him that he needed a big city lawyer. Her boyfriend worked for a firm that had conflicts, so it couldn't be him. They directed him towards Fuchsburg, and this is what happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, well, and the other thing, though, is that Tom said basically he blurted out that it, you know, it wasn't about money. He just wanted to go back to work for WWF, which, you know, he would say later was the stupidest thing he ever said. It was not something that had even really been on his mind going back to work there. But he loved wrestling and et cetera. And, yeah. So, look, we're going to get a lot deeper into that as time goes on, especially once we get later in the spring and... Lee and Tom have their split, and Lee's going on all the radio shows. So we'll, we'll get to that then in part two or three or whatever. All right, back to Dave. That's how Vince McMahon spent day one as the new and improved sincere Vince McMahon. Donahue staffers and panelists, including Bruno Sammartino, Meltzer, and Hodgson. Why is Dave mentioning himself in that way? Uh, those who come forward to expose their from Donahue show were appalled to learn that one of the few people they had gone to bat for, Tom Cole, had not only been bought off by McMahon, but that the WF had brought him to the show to flaunt him before the whistleblower's disbelieving eyes. Vintage McMahon. But the most disturbing about Monday's Donahue show was the look on me and the faces of the adults in the audience. They looked amused by it all, as if they were watching a cartoon show and listening to the testimony of make-believe men. A story midget wrestlers being blackballed from the WF because one of their own, the karate kid, refused the sexual advances of a WF exec, led chuckle to chuckles from the audience. But this story been about the Orioles, the Packers, or Green Bay, uh, uh, Green Bay Packers, or General Electric, no one would be laughing. It would only be the lead storm among every news entity in this land. A congressional hearing following a drop-everything FBI investigation would ensue. While the WS accusers continue to surface on a virtual daily basis, this story must no longer be left to the media to expose. State and federal legislators must see it through. Federal law enforcement agencies must act. If the FBI can go after Howard Spira... That's a name from the past. It ain't going to the WF. But as long as the WS real-life horrors are considered a laughing matter, no one's laughing louder than Vincent Mann. Talking about the, the people in the audience. I mean, again, that's what, it's wrestling. It's not serious to people, man. You know? But again, even then, though, like I said earlier, like the... The fact that that woman could sit... It's one thing to go into it with that. It's one thing to even be part of the way through the episode with that. To go through an hour of that and then ask, but isn't wrestling fixed anyway? 
is still a bit much. That welcome, Bix. Wrestling fans are so deep inside the bubble that they can't understand that people that are not wrestling fans have. No, 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 no. I get that, but my point is, is that the, my point is that woman who asked that question is not a serious person. You could say it. it you could apply that to anything else. You could apply that. I mean, even just saying that it's wrestling, it's just that's. There are other people who ask stupid questions. There was the how many? What's the percentage of the homo, of homosexuals in the wrestling business guy? But it's still nowhere near as stupid and egregious as the question that closes the show. But anyway, again, again, it, again, it doesn't. I mean, it, 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 as people's perception of wrestling that are not wrestling fans. So I just realized I don't know how this happened. The reason you were confused is that at some point when I was putting this together, I maybe it was late. Maybe it was getting lost in the weeds. I typed Dave instead of Phil. That was the continuation <laughs> and the end of Phil's column. So, Well, there we go. And we weren't going to re-record that because we still got a lot to get through. But <sighs> look, by and large, he's in the right here. It's I don't understand why. He doesn't I – because, mean, again, the, the, the Phillips thing should have been the center of the article, and it's not. Um, that's – I mean, that's what really sticks with me here, and this article really, and not just the Hannibal Lecter thing, also becomes really the biggest sticking point in the whole thing as far as the lawsuit, probably more than any other article. So I, I don't think there's that much you can take to task with it, though, right? Once you get past the Hannibal Lecter thing, you know – now, that's the thing that sticks out, but that's uh, that's at the, at the beginning of the column. So you read that, and you're like, "Well, it's also not know. defamation, though. It's you know, it's it's some there's, you know, there's other things, but it's, it's also rhetoric. Phil Mushnick too. It's also Phil Mushnick. That's his too, style, who, and everybody and people knew that at the time, and that's why he's seen as more of entertainment. Yes, he's a columnist. Yeah, I mean you know, that's he's the seen thing as too. Entertainment. Very, there, there's like only one story, one or two stories here. And I, I think, oh, I forget if it's the one the day after the Savage column comes out or the one where they're, the first one where they talk about the potential lawsuit before it. There is one that is run as news where him and Mike Shane are given the Cobine line, but everything else is in Mushnick's column. And so that's the thing. If it had been run by the normal, uh, news writers or whatever and not by him as a columnist it gets more traction yes now this one's a little different because it was front page of the sports section but but still it's a column yes and it's phil mushnick yes <laughs> if it had been done by one of the main sports writers then i tell you it's, it's treated differently yes now all of that said chris Said they should have a drop-dead federal investigation. What do you see here that I included that uh, we have from the next day? Federal investigator Anthony Valenti of the U.S. Attorney for the District, uh, Eastern District of New York left a message for Mushnick. To hear this entire show, support Between the Sheets on Patreon for just $5 per month. Go to patreon.com slash Between the Sheets.